It's not too sweet. It's refreshing, crisp, and neat. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's not too sweet. It's not too sweet. I repeat, it's not too sweet. Canada Dry cools your thirst. It's a taste that can't be beat. It's not too sweet. It's a cold, refreshing treat. Canada Dry Ginger Ale. It's not too sweet. Regular or diet, it's more refreshing because it's not too sweet. So this week I'm underwater. Yeah, yeah, we 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 were kissing. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, I, I got over it finally. And a week later, Blake's sick. So, but we're back again two weeks later than we were here. <laughs> two weeks later. Yeah. Meanwhile, two weeks later, I'm Dion Baya, and I'm Jay Blake, and this is Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Summer extravaganza. <laughs> Before I go anywhere, let's make sure everything's going good. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I watched uh, this movie, which we brought up, and I, I was supposed to look up to see what we brought it up in, but a couple weeks ago, we brought up the, Gary, the uh, Cary Grant movie, The Bachelor and the Bobby Soccer, and I misset it on the cast. I said the the the... Bobby and the Bobby Soccer, I think I said, but then in, in the write-up I clarified it. It's actually called The Bachelor and the Bobby Soccer with Cary Grant and Shirley Temple. Well, I rewatched it. Mm-hmm. And in rewatching it, the plot of the movie is very tenuous in 1947. Uh, Shirley Temple's 16 years old. Is it Bobby Soxer? No, no, he's not got a soccer. It's like Bobby right. Socks. Yeah, Bobby Soxer. What am I saying? Bobby Soccer? Yeah. Not soccer like you play foot soccer. <laughs> it's Bobby Soxer like uh, the old, they were Bobby Soxers in yeah, the yeah. old days. The old slang. For, uh, yeah, you know, girls with, like, the, the high socks and the nice poodle dresses, and you know, in the late 40s, that kind of look. So she's 17 years old, you know, really good looking for 17, to be politically correct, and uh, she falls in love with Cary Grant, you know, and Cary Grant's like, you yeah, know. Who wouldn't? Yeah, exactly. And then, Fuck, you know. I'm in love with Cary <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're a heterosexual man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, uh, she's, like, head over heels for him. It's a comedy. He's like, you know, you, you, know, you can't. No, this is, you know. So the family, I'm leaving out a lot of plot because you should see it, but the family says to him, listen, the only way she's going to get over it is you you completely commit to this relationship and start taking her out because if you if you if you deny her now she'll it, it's it'll be the one that got away and she'll love you for the rest of her life but yeah, if you yeah. do it now she'll get over this little childhood crush so that's the premise of the movie this guy who's like 40 is going to take this like 16 year old out or maybe she's even 15 so the first time when he commits to him, he goes okay i gotta do this he gets a jalopy comes shows up to the house and the first thing he says to the father is uh you look like the man uh, you look like the what is it you look like the babe, the babe, the babe with the power, the power of the babe, the power of hoodoo. You do voodoo. And he confuses the father, and the father's like, what the hell is he saying? And that is t- from Labyrinth. And I feel mm-hmm. and I, f- I feel really upset that we didn't know when we did the Labyrinth episode that, 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 that the David Bowie song, that's a reference, because I think that's really like a huge thing. And I never, and even researching the Labyrinth stuff, we never, I never saw that connection. But he says that in 47. He says that whole little... Verse where it's like you remind me of the babe, the babe, the babe with the power, the power of the voodoo, 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 you do hoodoo, and then then the guy walks off. Power of the babe, yeah, and then it, and then so he says it a couple times in the movie, and like I think like the last thing at the end of the movie is they like say it together to somebody, you remember the babe, the babe, the power of the babe, you do, hoodoo, hoodoo. <laughs> and the guy's like, what do they mean? And then like you know you see the happy ending scroll. So I wanted to clarify that because uh, 
for all those Labyrinth fans out there, we did an episode on it um, maybe in 2016, January, the same weekend. The, the day that before. Yeah, Bowie passed away. Yeah. And uh, coincidentally, yeah. So uh, I just wanted to add that to the list. So, okay. Good night, everybody. All right. That's it. Update. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the, it's, that was the uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Update. <laughs> you see that flash come up. So... Uh, Today we're going way down the alley. Going way down the alley. Uh, People mistakenly <laughs> label our show an 80s and 90s podcast. Yes. What you've said to me a lot of times, well, Dion, it's because we do a lot of that, and people are, are, are nostalgic Dion for that. Was a, for, there was a period of time where Dion was baffled by the fact that we were labeled that way, and I was like, well, we do a lot. We of that. do a lot of most of the majority of the movies we do are from the eighties or nineties because it's a nostalgic podcast, and that's that's uh, our youth. And I said, huh, you're right. But we've always done movies from the seventies, uh, and on occasion we've done. We delve deeper. Older than that. We've done sixties, we've done fifties, and I think we've either done forties and maybe thirties. Yeah. So uh this is an uh, an occasion where we're going a little further back, a couple of years before we were born. <laughs> Only a few. <laughs> to nineteen seventy four, right? To way back in nineteen seventy four. Yeah, the weekend that loved everybody. <laughs> now the funny thing about this movie, uh there's many funny things about this movie, but the funny thing about us doing this movie is that, like, since year one, we've been talking about doing this movie. And we say that every episode. As <laughs> part of our yes. hot summer in the city. Gritty New York. Gritty August, you know, wiping the sweat off our brow, steamy New York City events. You yeah. know, we didn't, uh, obviously, New York City. When we did Falling Down, it wasn't for New York City, but we thought that was like a steamy, hot movie. Summer. Not, not in sexually, but in like- No, a heat wave in LA. <laughs> heat waves know, and- uh, Sweating balls. It's hot. And that kind of started, I think- Maybe the first summer we- uh, Yeah, but it also it kind of started and we had that discussion in our weekend at Bernie's because that movie starts and it's hot in New York City and they're on, they're on the roof. Tars. <laughs> yeah, the roof tars. So hot. It's melting. <laughs> and uh, so we've always- Thought about like you know like we when we did the thing in the winter yeah like in like February March we like to do like a wintry movie yeah we stay seasonal in the summer we like to do hot summer movies so we've just always, like we hit holidays movie related so we've always talked about doing this for that yeah and we had it scheduled for August yeah and then something occurred and we wanted to move around the schedule a little bit and we were like well why don't we do take in Pelham one two three now that's what we're doing tonight and. Not the remake, not the 2009 remake, and not nope. the 1998 TV movie. Nope. <laughs> but the 1974 yep. original. Uh, and then we we're like, yeah, but then it's not going to be the hot summer, sticky August movie. I was like, but wait. Wait a second. This movie doesn't even take place in the summer. Yeah, it's a winter movie. <laughs> it's like an autumn movie. And that was the same when we did Adventures uh, so, in Babysitting. So for years, yeah. we were playing. And it, we would always schedule it for August, and then it would get bumped for something. Like, yeah. let's do Lost Boys instead, or whatever. It would. We'd always have it planned, 
And then we would always bump it for something. And then we're like, screw it. This year we're doing it. Hot summer, New York City. And, and, and it's people used to get really mad at us because we get it into the green room and we'd be like, sorry, we've, we've, we've bumped you. And they'd be like, we're not coming back. And we're like, come on, we'll have you on again. We'll have you on the show again. Yeah, the low, it would have been funnier had we realized that while we were watching it that we were wrong about it being a summer movie. But it was like, wait a second. The guy's got like the, a cold. He's got the flu. The, the mayor's got the flu. Yeah, it's... it's uh... They're all like in coats yeah it's a winter movie i did that uh, i was pitching to do uh one year adventures in babysitting as a summer movie because i hadn't seen it in 20 years and when you watch it's like no it's in the it's in the cold chicago winter <laughs> and i think we've done that we did that with something else where we thought it was a summer movie and then when we did it it was but actually when we quite did cold. weekend at bernie's we thought it was memorial a different day. holiday weekend. it was like it was like labor day weekend we were doing it for labor day weekend because we thought it was the end of the summer, maybe, but then it was the beginning. It's one of those. One of those. But this ties into, I think, our yearly. Um, you know, we we established a couple months ago. We we kicked in the door with Kung Fu February, mm-hmm. which I don't know if we'll do that every year. But we started a little thingy there. Yeah, we might. Yeah, we might. We might not. Keep you guessing. But then th- this is another. It, this probably can go into the sub 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 category of the gritty New York. Yeah. You know, we're doing it the summertime. We're in June. It's hot as hell outside now. We got the the, the heat index is up, as they say. Uh, it's you know, asphalt is melting. Yeah. So uh, we're well, officially done, in the we've summer done months. A few. We did Maniac was our gritty was a gritty New York. Movie. That's a very underrated uh, Joe Spinell uh, movie that uh, if people haven't seen. We did a podcast on that. Uh, we, and, we, and oddly enough, our most gritty uh, talks, discussion. Yeah. It was during weekend at Bernie. We talked about like a half an hour about gritty New York. Well, yeah, because it, it served the plot. What we were talking about, how um, uh, I mean, to summarize that again, it was basically because by the time of the late '80s, the New York gets so bad in the '70s into the '80s. By the late '80s, they're kind of like it's a joke. Yeah, it's a joke. There, it's it's uh, you know, so, so you get they're walking through Central Park and they get come up to get mugged and they're like it's too hot for yeah that. stop you know it's like and then with, with some like awesome like 80s sound score behind it and you see that like in crocodile dundee we bring that up a lot like these movies that just kind of like uh which we haven't covered yet no but we do talk about it because sometimes. it's it's up uh, it's the butt of the joke when he gets to new york from the outback he's like this is crazy and then at the end of the movie like you know he knocks a guy out with a can throwing it lobbing a can down like a subway <laughs> yeah, yeah. so it's like you know it becomes a butt of a joke in the late 80s so that's the reason why when we were talking about uh Weekend at Bernie's. We got off on a tangent. Yeah, talking about a hot <laughs> city and all that, and how the dangerous the city is. And I feel like we did another New York, an, an gritty, infin- an infamous Dion and Blake tangent. Yes, one, one of many, <laughs> one of many that the other other directors would have cut, but our directors said, "Let it go, let it roll, keep it extended." Uh, and I feel like we've done other uh, gritty New York seventies. I mean, we've done gritty '70s movies. Yeah, we did like Dirty Harry. Yeah, we did and Dirty we'll Harry. Probably do Magnum Force at some point. Yeah, we've done Sorcerer. That's kind of. Gr- I mean, we've done '70s grit. We've talked certainly about New York '70s grit we, with Randy Jurgensen and his uh, yeah, cruising. Cru- cruising. That was a hot summer. <laughs> that's time. a hot sticky. Where Blake <laughs> bo- showed bo- up in bo- cosplay. Uh, <laughs> Blake showed up in leather cosplay. We talk about the gritty '70s a lot because we talked about it in Rocky. Even though like yep. Rocky is Philly, like uh, it's Philly, but it's like a feel good movie. Yeah. Uh, it still has some of that. There's like this grit, and it to has it. also some of that humor that you'll see in this movie with yeah. Joe Spinell again. We mentioned him. Remember when he's talking to Rocky? You can't be nice. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah. You so, know, but you get some of that comedy. Now, I think we also should uh, start this off this podcast with a warning. I noticed we're, we're gonna well, one, we're gonna spoil. This yeah, well, movie. one, yes, one. And I have a feeling that there's a chunk of our audience that hasn't seen it. Yes, and we're not trying to be presumptuous there, but if you haven't seen this, it's this just, is, I don't. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I didn't see it until I was in my twenties, and I only saw it because you were a fan of it. You told me to see it. <laughs> I think if you haven't seen this movie, we tell you this a lot, but really to take it to heart, stop down, go watch this version, the nineteen seventy four one. Don't. I mean, there's no like huge surprise. No, but <laughs> shock it's just, anything, we're gonna but s- still. we're spoiling a lot for you. We're certainly gonna spoil the end. There is a twist ending, which is great. Yeah, so. certainly there's a plot. Uh, there's a there's a plot twist, but there's you know, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's it's a, it's a plot that definitely develops as the movie goes on. Yeah, you know, the premise is established pretty early, but then you don't want all that stuff. And spoiled. there's a, yeah, and there's a lot of inside stuff like jokes certainly that we don't want to ruin for you. So please stop down and go check this out if you haven't seen it. Come back, we'll be waiting for you. Don't worry, we're not going anywhere. <laughs> the second thing I wanted to say was I think we need to have a warning. I've noticed a lot of days you have these things for people, uh, and I'm not judging here, but there's now they're starting to have trigger warnings. And there's, you know, before you read an article, this article, there's, here's a trigger warning because we're going to talk about women and, and yeah, sex yeah. and uh, maybe abuse and maybe someone might talk about a breast. You know, so I want to just say here that, that we're going to institute a trigger warning here because we could be talking about stuff that people might find offensive because this was a different era. Yeah. Well, it's in the movie. Yes. It's in this. And we're exactly. going to be talking about the movie. So we're not making any judgments. We're just having to have to talk about it in conversation. We're laying it yeah. out. And this is certainly is uh, uh, one of the best examples. And I think it is to the movies, uh, to, to the, mo- to the movies, uh, what do you call that? It's like good, like, like to the benefit that it is not a PC movie. Yeah. It is not politically correct. I don't even think people even knew what that meant in 1974. Yeah, I don't know if that term was invented you know? yet. And this movie succeeds on so many levels because of that. And it is an exemplary example of yeah. I mean, I think some, 70 you know, cinema. We're, Dion and I are a little bit on eggshells because <laughs> yes. there was a reaction to a previous. Someone had a reaction to a previous episode. We have one bad review on iTunes. <laughs> And it, I mean, and it's it, not a bad. It's a bad. It's, it's like a, zero. It is a bad. It's like libelous. Yeah, uh, scandalous shit. I mentioned Megyn Kelly. Not even. It was just because I, I was really the story that people flipped out. I, I we talked about racism in regards to falling down. Falling down because I think what happens. What happened was, we. What happens with this show, and I think rightfully so, in my personal opinion, is that we. Talk, we when we cover a movie, we talk about the movie in the context of the time it was made. Yes, and we often will we'll set the table, as Dan would say, and we'll talk about what was happening in the world. And I think some of that will happen today because the seventies in New York, there, I think, is a there's a very clear correlation. Yeah, with things that were happening in the seventies New York and the and part of the plot of this movie. And I think that helps you. F- uh, further appreciate a movie in general and so to be- know the surrounding and because context. a movie was made falling in a down. certain time like falling down or this movie or dirty S- hair or any movie yeah smoking we don't usually cast judgment on something that would maybe today be perceived as pol- politically incorrect because what are we going to do? It was made already. Yeah, you can't change yesterday. <laughs> it's that that would be we could sure yeah. we could spend time a half an hour talking about why it doesn't why that's why in today's standard that's wrong. But that's not what our show's about. Our show's about talking about the movie, what's given to us. Yeah, and you know, uh, the, 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 yeah, and, the, and the way we feel about it. The cards and, we are, were dealt by what the and movie we try does. to keep it lighthearted. So yeah. and then with falling down, we were talking about how like back there's in a the lot. Day, for instance, there's a lot of misogyny in uh, the movie today. Oh, this movie, yes. Well, most comically, and I, I think p- 
played for comedy. Yeah. But often, but in cases I don't think played for comedy. Yeah. And, and, and I, for me, I, you know, like they are making a joke out of it, but then there's stuff where there's a, it, there's at least one instance I can think of off the top of my head where there's misogyny and it's not meant for a joke. It's just like they didn't think anything of it. I, I th- also, I think there's, a, there's, I don't know if you call it racism. I mean, that could be the word to use. Uh, there could be a better one, but I think that uh, shows up in this movie that's played for comedy, certainly. And then there's other aspects that may not, they're just using words that you wouldn't use today, you know, anymore, that, that, that we've updated that kind of parlance. Yeah, yeah. So with the Falling Down episode, back in the day, uh, people may find this hard to believe who didn't live back then, you know, Michael Douglas's character was viewed a little differently or perceived a certain way. And then, you know, within force, what is that, foresight 20 years later, you look at it, you go back, you're like, well... You know, and then we tried to even extend, and we were making hypotheticals saying, well, we didn't think necessarily that Michael Douglas's character per se was racist. Yeah. He wasn't going after the, the, the member, the bodega store owner because he was Korean. Yeah. He was going th- to the bo- bodega store thingy who was, you know, say, price gouging that happened to be Korean. Or, yeah, yeah. So a lot of the, and then, but then also there was clear examples <laughs> in the movie where there was, you know, African-Americans in it that he had, he, you know, the guy who's the, his opposite, yeah. the defense guy. And we were also guy. talking about, like, you know, is it okay to be nostalgic for the fifties? Yeah, and, and then we were saying like, well, it is if the reason, as long as you're not being nostalgic for it because the, of like, any kind of social, inju- yeah, or social injustices. <laughs> so, you know, it was just there was, a, I guess, there were some blur. Somebody perceived it as blurry lines, and, so they and, were and thought we were pissed. on an, another side of the line. Then we'd we think we are. So, yeah, so we were called racists and... and so keep that in mind with all our shows. Yeah. We're talking about a film from a certain time period. We talk about it within that time period. Yeah. It's like, for instance, when we were in school, we had a class, like a film history class where it was watched. I remember it like it was yesterday. And we watched a D.W. Griffith movie. Oh, Birth of a Nation? No, well... We did watch that, but this discussion happened during Broken Blossoms, I think. Is oh, and yeah, and there's a line in Broken Blossoms where, well, tell me, I guess what's the, the plot it is. It doesn't matter what the line is. The okay. line is offensive. <laughs> but there Towards were, uh, Chinese-Americans. There was, Chinese. it was a, it was, there was a Chinese character in the movie, and it was, uh, by today's standards, a racist view of... St- stereotypical racist view of of, of a, uh, a yeah. Chinese person. Yeah, you, yeah. and L- young Lillian Gish because isn't she we, like the girl in the movie? Yeah, well, so I think be- it was. It might have been Lillian Gish. Yeah, she's someone who was pick- who, who's a big deal. Or Mary, 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 either Mary Pickford or I think Lillian Gish, and she d- d- develops a relationship with this Chinese man, and she's a child, and they have this thing, and then this line reoccurs in the movie, and it's supposed to be like um, endearing. Yeah, yeah. But <laughs> anyway, know? there's a, there's a whole aspect of it. We had an Asian girl in our class. Yes, not Asian American. I mean, she might have been American, but she was from yeah. Asia. And people I used to say off the boat, but they don't take people don't come here by <laughs> boats anymore. You know, it's like she I was, don't. Rem- and unfortunately, I don't remember which Asian country uh, she wasn't actually in her class for very long. But she took offense to this movie. Yeah, and she found the movie very offensive, and I didn't speak up. But my point was like my my feeling was like like yes, by today's standards, it is. Yeah, but. For better or worse, 
probably for, you know, I think undeniably for worse, this wasn't perceived as racist at the time. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie that was made like in the 20s. It was a silent. It's a silent <laughs> picture <laughs> with subtitles. You know, it comes, it comes with to like title, title cards. cards. You know, it's silent. I mean, yeah. it was before sound in motion pictures. Yeah. And I mean, even I think the person playing the Asian or Chinese American. It's probably Chinese, not Asian. Yeah. He's, he's probably like in yellow faces, they would call it. So and it's which it, might even be perceived as racist. <laughs> that phrase might even be racist for all we. Well, know. it's like blackface, brown. There's a lot of you know for, minstrel, for the quote unquote minstrel show, and, and it's and it nowadays when we live in this hyper political time, people even get uncomfortable broaching these subjects. Yeah, yeah. And it's so it's funny self. that we're having this conversation for taking them up. Yeah, it's just like a lighthearted yeah. 70s action Well, because I wanted to emphasize that we needed to have this warning that there's going to be triggers for people who might find topics offensive, which we don't mean to be offensive. We're just talking about yeah. the stuff. And so now, our feature presentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you skip by the video and trailers, and now you're... <laughs> um, so, Taking a Pelham, 1974. Blake, when was the first... You've heard about this movie. <laughs> uh, Go. I think it was probably you talking about it. And I don't remember remember what the conversation was, but you talked about it. And then I caught it from basically the beginning, like the beginning, for, like on Turner Classic Movies one night. And I probably saw it on the info bar. Taking, I was like, oh, that's the movie Dion was talking about. Lord knows when. Yeah. Three years ago. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or whatnot. And I was like, oh, so I watched it, and I fucking loved it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I really like this movie a lot. Um, I first heard it, maybe like most people my age who were uh, into the Beastie Boys. Um, there's a Beastie Boys album called Ill Communication, and the first song off of Ill Communication is called Sure Shot. And this came out maybe when we were freshmen in high school, possibly sophomores. And in that song, like the second verse, I think it's Ad Rock says, it's like the taking of the Pelham one, two, three. If you got the Duddy rhyme, then come see me. So, you know, back in the day when you're lip syncing all this stuff, yeah. you know, you, it becomes a conscious a part of you. So for years, I, you know, it's like the taking of the Pelham one, two. I didn't know what the hell that meant. Yeah, there's yeah. tons of stuff. And it's funny enough because there's a lot of, Stuff, uh, funny enough, in Beastie Boy songs, like they have a song called uh, High Plains Drifter off Paul's Boutique, and High Plains Drifter is a reference to the Clint Eastwood Western. But then within that song, they say, uh, you know, like Steve McQueen, a former movie star, and at the time I didn't know who Steve McQueen was because I was like, you know, this is like 1989 or 1990. And then later on in the song, they say, uh, let's say they say, uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, on the run from Dirty Harry. And right there you have references to Dirty, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry is one of those road car movies from the early 70s with um, Victor Mor Vic Moro's in it. But it's like these couple get in a car and they you yeah. know, try to outrun the law and they have a speedy car. They rob banks and at the end it's a tragedy, much like Easy Rider. And then they reference at the end of that is Dirty Harry that we know the movie we covered. So it's like you learn stuff from you know when you're growing up from songs and stuff sure, so yeah. that's how i knew uh the name of this movie the taking of the pelham one two three and then i feel like this was a movie that was really never available like on video i'd never seen this movie you know i also feel like even when it came out on d on blu-ray or even dvd but even when it, but i think when it came out on blu-ray like it was exclusive to best buy mm. so like which is odd and i don't have the blue blu-ray of this and then i remember s i saw the movie because of uh the place you know of best video the, the for my hometown this video store that really prided itself on having like every movie that ever came out even if it wasn't out they'd have a print of it on like a a, a video copy of it and 
I guess in 2000, and I don't remember if this is after we graduated, because uh, we graduated 2001, or if we were still in college, I went into Best Buy one night looking for something to rent, and they had new DVD best releases. Video. I'm sorry, Best Video, yeah. not Best Buy, Best Video. And they had on the wall the new releases, and they also had like new releases to video on the wall. Mm-hmm. So they put like the stuff that had just been released on video, and they had the Taken of the Pelham 1, 2, 3, and I was like, holy shit. The take, it's like the take on the film, one, two, three. If you got the rhyme, you come see me. And I was like, holy crap. So I got it, took it home. And I mean, you you know, this is a movie that was like made for Dion Bayer. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the cast in this, I knew everybody, you know. Sure, I mean, yeah. Walter Matthau, Jerry, um, um, Jerry Stiller, Robert Shaw, Mar- Martin Balsam, Hector Alonzo. Uh, what's his face? Who's Wilson from Home, uh, home Improvement. <laughs> yeah. And all these other minor ancillary uh, D. Wallace um, for when I was growing up, uh, the only thing I'd ever seen him in was he was the mayor from Batman, and I used to say, like, wow, he looks so much like Ed Koch. Lee Wallace. Lee Wallace. Lee Wallace. Not to be mistaken with D. Wallace. Not the old <laughs> D. Wallace. <laughs> Not the mo- mother from <laughs> E.T. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, and I used to say, like, wow, he looks so much like Ed Koch, and then it's like, even when he's in this movie, he's cast in kind of an Ed Koch kind of role, although, in, in, you know, uh, chronologically or historically, Ed Koch was, wouldn't become mayor for like another four years, and he was mayor for like 12 years until Dinkins came in, in the late 80s. Yeah. Uh, but, he, but Koch was such a larger-than-life person for, in our area in the Northeast, or maybe in the country at that time, he was very iconic. You'd see him all the time on TV talking about New York and in the 80s and stuff. So by the time Batman came out in 1989, Tim Burton's, the mayor looking like Koch, it looked like it was a, almost like a forced yeah, comparison. Yeah. So then when I saw him, I'd only seen him in, as the mayor in that. Then seeing him here as the mayor of this, it's like, oh my God, it's, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's this tie-in joke. So, uh, I, yeah, I think another thing for us to stay at the beginning of this cast, like you said, is like, I love this movie. <laughs> and there's nothing I would change about it. And yeah, I think this yeah. is an example of a movie that like, uh, an awesome heist film. There's there's certainly different categories of heist films. And this movie is, not only is it a great heist film, uh, you can clearly see it paved the way influenced a lot of other stuff that yeah. came down the line, as well as you can maybe even term this as like a black comedy. Because there's so much comedy in this. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then so that when it gets serious, it is a little more serious than it usually would be because you're, you're playing other scenes for laughs. And I don't even think they're, pl- they're, they're playing it straight, like, say, a Smokey and the Bandit would do, but then it's inherently the situation makes it comedic. Yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, it's, uh, it's like one of the most New York movies ever. Yeah, it's so New York. I mean, <laughs> I feel like a lot of the people who were like like the the C level casting of this movie are like non actors. Yeah, and I I think that is like it's a stellar ex- like you couldn't have this movie be as successful because the I think even like uh, Ebert said this when reviewing it like like the cast of this movie makes elevates it from just being a typical thriller heist you know job kind of a movie to like something special because it is almost like a like a snapshot a polaroid yeah. of new york city and every character seems to be completely fleshed out yeah and it's like it's the new york subway system i mean look you know if you're going to make a list and dion and i have often fantasized of making like a programming like at a movie theater like a month of new york movie. yeah for whatever reason <laughs> you know just because like there's so many well, we one, talk about taxi one we live here but like we love Maniac and Taxi Driver. Eyes of Laura Mars. This movie, uh, you know, just 
so many warriors. Yeah, warriors is, might be the only movie that's more New York than the uh, New York. cruising. <laughs> we've thought, we've yeah, thought of so like we just and I, part. I mean, I think it's partially it's because we're we live here, you know, and and that's part of the romanticism. Well, it's also like I have no. I've been most. I've been for basically my entire adult life been in or just outside of and working in and visiting often New York City. Like myself. Yeah, both of us. And so there's this thing when you live here. Oh, so much so, too, that um, you and I, particularly me, I think you a little bit, but you know, we're so close that we even got like some of the local programming. You know, like I would get WPIX. I get a lot of the New York stations. So you felt like you were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I mean in Albany, I didn't. But yeah. like we went, we both went to college together. You know, that's where we met, obviously, uh, just outside of New York City. And. But so like my point is like most of my my entire adult life has been pretty much as like a New York City guy. So I can't imagine because I can't remember far back enough to realize like when people watch movies I mean, I guess L.A. is like this. If you live in L.A., it's probably like this. But it's like... Or Chicago, maybe, or, you know. You know certain I mean, cities. Yeah, but there's, like, so many movies that were shot in New York. Yeah. And, you know, especially L.A., that when you see things, you're like, oh. So, like, when you watch this, I remember seeing some movie with... Um, Muppets Take Manhattan. Well, Muppets Take Manhattan, but even a movie... I think it was called Fighting with... Uh, what's that guy's name who was... Uh, he was in the Magic Mike movies and Twenty One Jump Street movie. He's got a Mike Epps. No, no, a young white guy, a good-looking guy in shape. Oh, t- Ch- Channing Tatum. Channing Tatum. Some G.I. Joe. So yeah, same movie with some movie with Channing Tatum. Okay, so many years ago, and I'm seeing it at Forty Second Street, the theater. The theater, yeah. And he in the movie lives at this building that's now like closed. Yeah. Called the Elk Hotel, yeah. which is at Forty Second and Eighth, yeah, and well, and that's where he lives in that building. I was like, oh my, he lives a block away <laughs> from where I'm seeing this movie, and so like so much of the movie is taking place around where I'm actually watching this movie. That see that happens to me a lot. So it's like it, there's this whole like fourth dimension. Yeah, there's like <laughs> there, a fourth wall breaks. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, like I know where all this stuff is. So when I watch a uh it's great to watch older New York movies because then you get to see what New York was, you know, like it's like yeah. a little time capsule. You bitch about what it's like now. But Go it's look always it. like warriors and and whenever it's like a subway stop, I'm like, "Oh, what stop is that?" Because like I've been to that, you yeah, know, Death I, Wish, you know, so I know that stop. And yeah. I was like, oh, which what stop is this? Oh, it's the 59th Street stop. Okay, yeah, I know where that is. Yeah, uh, I find that I remember a couple. There's there's uh, movie Ghost World. Is it Ghost World? What's the movie with Ricky Gervais where he's the dentist and he's seeing dead people and uh, Greg Kinnear's in it? Yeah, I don't. Ghost, the, is Ghost World's the one with, with Brad the, Pitt, right? No, but, that's that's Cool World. Cool Ghost World, World is yeah. the Christina Ricci. It's anyway, based off a graphic I know the novel. Movie you're talking about. Yeah, well, he at the beginning of it, Craig Kinnear's walking down Sixth Avenue, and I could see my job, and it's yeah, like yeah. that's amazing. And then well, we even had you watching Kojak. You were like, that's, look, see, this was what it was with Hector Alonso in that episode. <laughs> so it's the second episode. Of, so that's one of the reasons that draws me to watch Cagney and Lacey and Kojak is because it's set in Manhattan, where I work in Midtown by the Diamond District. So aside from it being amazing stories and plot lines and compelling characters, it's amazing to see. It's it's almost like breaking 
that mysterious fourth wall. And I am a weird guy where I think I brought this up in the Victoria Price interview, where I like... I, I'm I'm a romantic like that. Like I like touching things, like you know this history and where the stuff was. Or think about can you think that somebody was here and shot this bit here? Or we talk about what's the name of that movie? Is it safe? Uh, Marathon Man. Yeah. And that whole scene with Lawrence Livy in the Diamond District, and it's like that happens on Forty Seventh and Sixth. It's like oh wow, you know that. So I love all that stuff, I and I get know. like a little kid. So like like you're saying, seeing that here, I remember seeing that it came and went Gulliver's Travels, the new one that Jack Black did. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of the movie, it's like he lives in this shitty studio apartment, and it's it's on Forty Seventh Street between like Sixth and Seventh. Sure, yeah. and I'm like, that's the block I come to every day, and I'm looking like an outside. It's supposed to be Times Square. I'm like, oh, I wonder. So I'm trying to speculate. Well, maybe he lives up there. You know, it's for like me, the one stuff. thing that I always get a little bit nostalgic about in movies is because you see it in a lot of movies is the Howard Johnsons in Times Square. Yeah, and you and I went na- there, didn't you? Which is now closed. But yeah, we went there for lunch. And I had a hair in my so- fries. And you're like, forget it. It's, it's the <laughs> Howard Johnsons in Times Square. Just deal with it. <laughs> and in the back, they had the Howard Johnsons cocktail lounge. Yes, a forgotten, forgotten which era. Which I had gone to a few times with friends to <laughs> to get a drink. Uh, and it was, you know, right. It's like walking right into the center. And that was on 46th and I want to say 46th and Broadway, It's right? not there anymore. No. They knocked it down. It's just a big freaking electric billboard. But I always <laughs> wished I, when that tore, when they tore that down, I was like, oh, I, I wish I hung out there more than I did. So every time I see the Howard Johnsons, which you see in yeah. a lot of movies, even like, like even you know, I'm sure Jason takes Manhattan, yeah, any any taxi driver, anything that's shot in it, Times Square, it's on the Times west Square, side of Times Square. Certain, you know, before like 2010. <laughs> yeah, if you could see <laughs> you it can there. See, it's, With it's the blue, there. is it blue or green uh, it's neon? The, it's red, ne- well, like orangey red neon. Okay, I'm completely off. Dion's colorblind this episode. Uh, Even uh, I just recently saw, and I'm embarrassed to say for the first time, Birdman. Loved it, by the way. And then that also takes a place a block away on the other side of Times Square where I work. And there's a scene when he comes out and you could see the Edison Hotel. And there was the Edison um, Diner that is now closed. But that at the time back in the day was a huge place that um, specialized, I think, like in Jewish delicacies or like matzo ball soup or stuff like that. Great, cheap. bowl of matzo ball yeah, soup. But it also was a huge uh, it place It closed for, like two years ago. Yeah, and it was because like lack of business or f- uh, foot traffic, but that was a place in the 50s, 60s where playwrights like Eugene O'Neill and all the Arthur Miller would go and hang yeah. out after their and play. Actually, and just, you know, know, sadly, it didn't even... It, it, I don't know why it closed. I don't think it needed to close. It didn't... They did business. It was always... There's always people in there, but the Edison Hotel... Which is next door. Just didn't renew their lease. Yeah, which is terrible. And it was connected to, like, the Edison Hotel. You can go in, and then in the back, you can get out and go into the lobby of the hotel where the Edison Ballroom is. So it's like these things you see... Everything's closing. Yeah, and New it's... York now. Because they're... But that's I mean, a whole other episode. Yeah, Music Row is completely destroyed because corporate's coming in and leveling everything, and then, you know, in about 10 years, you're, you're going to have to be a millionaire to live in Midtown. One of my favorite restaurants <coughs> ever Excuse in New me. York, which I guess you probably introduced me to. Mikhail's. Sapporo. Oh, Sapporo, yeah. A Japanese restaurant on 49th Street. And between it was there. And it had been there since 1975. Yeah, and you knew so it was a, a year after this movie. Came and out. you knew it was a good place because when you go in there, and it was a noodle house. It didn't serve. Sushi. It wasn't sushi. Yeah, and it was like it was like teriyaki yeah, and noodles, sukiyaki and, and rice and uh, ramen and, and, and stuff gyoza. Like that. But you all you'd see in there were Japanese suits. Yeah. Like, you know, like businessmen, while on their break, they come in and they would order everything in Japan. They had the menu in Japanese on the wall on wooden yeah, planks. Yeah. So it was so like cash only, you know. And then like this, it, 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 it closed. And then yeah. underneath there was a hockey place that all my friends used to go to too. That that 
the three of them, the, that, the hoggy place, and it, yeah, the whole yeah. building went away. And it was like, it was devastating because there was no warning. It just saw it like on a, like a Yelp review blog. And I think I shared it with you and Mike Verona, yeah, our friend. Yeah. And it was, and it was like terrible. And it was tragic because, I don't know, for me, food is such a big part of my life that the things I would eat at that restaurant, no other restaurant would make them like that. Yeah. So it's like, I'll never eat that again. Yeah. Like, I'll never be able to taste what that tastes like. Terrible. <laughs> I mean, I just brought up McHale's. There was a, there was a, do you know the McHale's? Yeah. That was a they, staple. It's reopened somewhere else. See, I haven't been, I haven't been up to it. There was, no, don't I haven't it. been to it. I mean, I haven't been to it, but. I know it's. Re- I've seen it. And that it's real, <coughs> but yeah, McHale's used to be like this. What was it? Forty classic dive bar. Seven forty seventh and eighth, or forty sixth and eighth, and you had movies like Sleepers shot in there. Uh, Money Train, which yeah. kind of connected to this movie, uh, was shot in there. And you go in there for you can get a, an amazing huge burger for ten bucks and like awesome steak fries, yeah. and it was quick, cheap, great jukebox, and it was just. It was a slice in New York that you'd see a lot of movies reference or take place in. And then that was one of the first, I'd say, in 2006 or 7, that the landlord, you know, um, didn't renew their lease or jacked their lease up, and they got leveled the building, and now it's like one of those huge high-rise expensive condos. And that that spelled the end of Now you're starting to see that everywhere in Manhattan, all these great classic eateries or bars, Langens around the corner from us, you know, they just jacked their rent up, and you can't afford it, you know. Before all that, before that was his death. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to 1974, taken to the Pelham One Two Three. Anyway, sorry we went on. We got got nostalgic. We did. This show's about nostalgia. I know, and, and, and we can't help it after having a couple drinks. And we needed to put that warning in because you know, I mean, who knows what we can get? We can go this I mean, long way around. Yeah, Dion uh, took the scenic route. Dion, some, sometimes some stuff that comes out of Dion's mouth, we do not want. Uh, but uh, so take it, pal. One, two, three, based on a book. Yes, like so many of the movies we do. Yes, by John. How do you think you pronounce Godi? Uh, yeah, which say Godi, G O D E Y, Gotti, Godi. Uh, that is his pen name. His real name was Morton Friedgood, and he'd written some other things too. But particularly, he wrote this in 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an uh, instant kind of like bestseller. Uh, I think the rights were picked up very quickly, and then. Uh, pretty good turnaround. This comes out in 72, the novel, and they come out with this movie we're talking about today in 74. Yeah. And uh, for the most part, I think the novel, we didn't get a chance to read the novel like we like to do uh, for this show. Like we said, we had this scheduled for August. Yeah, and we, we changed. So my, my copy ain't coming until <laughs> the end of so August. we just didn't... Uh but when you read descriptions, it sounds like it. Yeah, follows, for the most part, follows the plot pretty pretty strange. Yeah, I mean the ending is slightly different, only like in how the lead character, the bad guy, uh, meets his demise and uh, some of the you know minor character changes. But for the most part, everything stays the same. And uh, uh, the plot of this movie, um, very quickly, is just about uh, a bunch of guys. What is it? Four or five guys? I think four guys who hijack a subway train. Uh, and what they do is they each get on at, at uh, one stop apiece on the sixth train. And it's they're getting on the Pelham train. And what this means in train talk also is uh, taking to the Pelham one, two, three. So what that means is uh, in, in train parlance, if a train starts from Pelham up in the Bronx and is coming down. When you get on a subway, it always says like, it'll tell you like where the destination where it's going to end up, yeah. Where it's going to end up. So it has to start somewhere. Yeah. So, so when you get on, it's like Coney Island or... Pelham. Pelham. If it's going the other direction, 
it would say like this is south the, the six train going to Pelham. Yeah, or that's going north. Yeah, and then one two three means the time it departed from Pelham. So it, it departed at one twenty three p.m. Yeah. So that's Pelham one two three, and that also just for a lot of like the uh, the train men to like when you're you know looking on the board and trying to figure out where trains are. That's how a good way to delineate like okay Pelham one two three. That's going here, you know, Woodlawn, you know, 630, which they reference in this movie. Walter Matthau gives a shout out to yeah. where Blake and I used to live when we got out of college for a year together. We shared an apartment on the Yonkers Woodlawn border. Uh, and uh, when it gets down to 59th Street, uh, each guy gets on at each stop. And until the four are on, the last guy gets on, I think, at Grand Central. And this it's a six train. And then between Grand Central and I think 28th Street, what they do is they hijack the train. They slow the train down, uncouple the front car, leave the rest of the train, and then they leave, and then and then they, they tell the people to get off and walk back to the yeah. Grand Central and then stop. They stop and hold up between twenty eighth and twenty third. Yeah, the, the, the stops, one right? the, the 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 head car of the yeah. subway. Um, my father, I think, who I've mentioned before on this cast, and who has also had a um, an unscripted <laughs> cameo cameo a couple weeks ago, which was quite frightening for all of us. Um, he was a he worked for the uh, Metro North Railroad for forty years. So Blake and I had a lot of experience. I had a lot of experience growing up around trains and train people and stuff like that. And you and I, because of my dad, uh, would do stuff train related and go visit him at yeah, the train yard out in the New Haven train yard. Yeah, you know, at the, at the my dad was a station master, and I could explain to you a little later what he does and and explain to who the guy in the in this movie is the equivalent of my dad. And Blake and I have also been on a train that derailed. <laughs> we, are, we have been on a, de- a train that derailed. While we were on it. While we were on it, exactly. We were on it in a derail, which meaning was, um, and this is probably stuff we shouldn't be talking about, but who's, you know, this is the old days. And we were just- a long time ago. Yeah, this was over 20 years. No, not 20 years, but 15, 20, yeah. Well, between 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And we got on a train that was making a move. And what that means is if you're in the yard- and you're trying to get like uh, a couple engines and the cars that when they call that the equipment if you're trying to get some equipment from one track to another you got to make moves in the yard you know and you're on a rail system so you got to go to this way move a track this way yeah. you know you know how you play with your train set so <laughs> we were on a it's like playing with a giant train set. yeah exactly and we were on a train that was a diesel train i think it was yeah, like it was a, a giant engine it was right? like yeah it was and a, they were just moving the cars a around. genesis train one of those ones that you see like out west the ones that carry the big freights they were moving some cars around and what happened was the tie and for some, your dad was like, "Yeah, go on up. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, go, <laughs> take a ride on yeah, an old. Yeah, go, go check out an old diesel of the Genesis trains." And we got up there, and I mean, we weren't driving or not. We're just, you know, yeah, we're with the guy, and he's, yeah, we're you know, sitting there, and we're like, "This is cool because we're getting up and getting into trains." And the car it was going slowly, and then uh, I think one of the ties broke, which means like, you know, the two rails around the pieces of wood; those are the ties. Yeah. And I think the tie cracked. The track, yeah. Yeah. So kinda. we were going really slow, and then it just we felt like a douche. Yeah. And then it was technically derailed because I think one of the wheels left the track or was off the track. So quickly, my dad's like, get the fuck off the train! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why don't you get out of here? (laughs) (laughs) Because I guess we weren't supposed to be up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's just, that's hearsay. And all this could be fictionist because we're we're, we're not... Yeah. The business of show. Yeah, it's all the, um, you know, the, uh, what do you call that? The, uh, the... How you know when you commit a crime, there's a statute of limitations. You know, like, <laughs> I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble here. But so, growing up, I've been a lot of train equipment. So, what's my point here? So, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about in the cast that relates to my, to my knowledge or talking to my dad about this stuff directly. So, basically, that's the plot of the movie where they, these hijackers take the train, they take the head car, move it in between stops in one of these train tunnels, and they radio in 
And this is unheard of in 1974. And they're like, listen, you got an hour from 2.13 to 3.13 to get like a million dollars, which was a lot of money back then. Oh, after that, we're going to start executing a hostage every minute until you give us our yeah. money. Now, some, fan- some, um, some amazing things to think about in the context of this movie. At least uh, I find them very interesting. We set the table a little bit? Should I get so- out the silverware? <laughs> <laughs> uh, more like, uh, I don't know if I wouldn't consider it setting the table. But I would say, would you, th- do you think, bad, it's bad, not bad. exactly like it, but you think in a way that this is like one of the early ex- examples of like the Die Hard plot. You did that last week, Die Hard on an Island with Jurassic Park. <laughs> you keep throwing that every, every movie we do. You're like, do you think Labyrinth is like Die Hard uh, in a maze with... Uh, but this one even more so than... Um, if, you can think, I mean, the first, the earliest movie that no, would normally come to mind is Black Sunday. Which is Robert Shaw. Which is also Robert Shaw, but that's not until 1977. Correct. Amazing movie, which we can get to. Um, Bruce Dern? Bruce, yeah. My man, Bruce Dern. John Frankenheimer directs, and there's a couple other uh, good characters in it. But yeah, Robert Shaw, Bruce Dern. And that's really like the Super Bowl or whatever. Like, yeah, uh, like it's a, awesome. Like a sporting event. That's much like sudden death with Sean Claude. <laughs> yes, yeah. Except that's in a hockey arena. Right? <laughs> that's in a hockey arena. And you got the powers, the booth. But in a lot of ways, this is like it's taking over the train. And, or, you know, well, you could say like speed. Yeah, on a bus. But that's, yeah. I think, a byproduct of Die Hard. Well, the, which yes. is like Die Hard on a bus. Yeah. Well, clearly, like Walter Matthau, our John McClane character, <laughs> is not on the train. Now, in the book... Much like in the movie, you find out during it's a little plot twist, which they don't use so much. But you find out in the middle of the in the, in the movie uh, that there is an undercover cop as one of the subway people on the train, and they're like, "How do you know that?" It's like because they were vice guys and they were partners. One guy got off at the stop before he phoned in to tell. That's how we find out because this is prior to the, the world of cell phones. Yeah, yeah, that there is an undercover. But then they make it. We don't know if it's a man or a woman. They really leave it ambiguous, which is great. So that leaves the audience guessing. It's like clue. So in the book, I think that guy has a little has bigger, a bigger, role, bigger role, and he yeah. ends up being the guy who, at the end of the move, at the end of the book, uh, I think does away with the Robert Shaw character. Uh, spoiler alert! But in the movie, they kind of leave him. Th- so my p- point here is that I think that is a little more to your answer yeah. of that's almost diehard yeah. guy stuck on a train. It's almost like Under Siege Two. But <laughs> you know? my other aspect of this is. Think ten year, oh, only ten years, less than ten years later. Nineteen eighty three. So thinking like early eighties. Yeah, there is no way in hell you would have casted Walter Matthau in a movie like this. Oh, this goes back to your okay. Yeah. Um. Yes and no. I think you could get away with it. Maybe to you could have gotten away with like Eastwood. Okay. Like an old like who's a little older. Yeah. Yeah. But you're you know, talking about because of the good look, you're looking like the like a, just like there's no way like there's like 70s was a time when you when when like the stars of television yeah. shows and movies were people like Tully Savalas yeah. <laughs> and Walter the guy, Matthau. and the guy who and the crazy Manics. thing is like this is like not even the one this isn't even like a one off for Walter Matthau in 73 uh, he made Charlie Barrick and Great. The Laughing Policeman which were also like these gritty 70s kind of action movies yeah Charlie Barrick is the movie Don Siegel did after Dirty Harry uh, and he brought some of the Dirty Harry cast with him Andy Robinson the guy who played Scorpio in Dirty Harry and The Laughing Policeman which is also in, I think I think it's New York, uh, a cop movie, 
awesome gritty you know cops so there we talk we've brought this up before in the past and uh i'm a huge fan of telly savalas particularly and you get that era broader you have the guy from manix which is you know he he's he's crazy not crazy looking but he's definitely not so much as you would think as a ladies man you get like canon you get all these people of the day and they're odd choices and i think there, there. Back then, there was an era where you take Telly Savas, for example, and I'm sure we could talk about him, you know, another time in depth. But he's a guy who he's Greek. He may not be when you first see him. So you know, he's a good-looking guy. But there's a sexual magnetism towards him <laughs> that he became during Ko- uh, Kojak. He yeah. became a sex symbol in the '70s. Yeah. I mean, so much so he's you know every he's, he's taking pictures with his shirt off. He's a singing career. And the singing career isn't much because a lot of people had a singing career. And I'm not trying to say that Walter Matthau is a sex symbol in this movie. But it was an era where you could have regular people who were good actors play these parts and do it spectacularly well. And then as cinema developed into the 80s and 90s, you start getting good-looking people having to fill these roles. Like we had said already, there is a lot of comedic stuff in this movie. But Walter Matthau, by that point, had to have been best known for comedy. You know, because we had had like the Odd Couple, by yeah, then. Fortune Cookie, a lot of Fortune his, like, Cookie. A, yeah, you know. I mean, because he started when was, off doing. Uh, when was Bad News Bears? That's probably after this. That's seventy-five or six or so. I mean, I think he's straight down the line there. Well, he wasn't. He wasn't the comedic guy, but he was doing good comedies because yeah, yeah. he was also doing like we just said it. He was doing sh- good straight yeah, movies. Yeah, I'm just saying it. Um, and he got, a, certainly got his career doing episodic and stuff, being a straight, you know, kind of guy. So. It's a weird choice, but he's a he's a great actor, and he doesn't well in this movie. And I think as his career went on, he started doing more comedies yeah. like Grumpy Old Men and all. You know, then I mean, he shows but. up doing serious roles like uh, JFK or stuff like that. But it's an it's an example of an era where you could have you know top TV shows like man. I was watching Manix the other night, and that guy is just and uh, I, I don't recall the actor's name, and it's a great show, but it's like. There's so many shows like that, particularly in the 70s. I mean, like James Garner is a good looking guy from Rockford Files and stuff. But like a guy like Cannon or... Yeah, yeah but he was know, also past his heyday. You know what I mean? Who's that? Rockford? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because he's, yeah, cause he's uh, either... Uh, was, so, you know, it was like... You and, got that, and, and it's interesting because you think about it in the context of... And these are all detective shows. Of today, saying. you know, looking back, we're like, oh, like he probably really wasn't that old. But... You yeah, know, like now doing, that we're old. <laughs> he was doing, what's the... Um, he was probably like the age that we are. Yeah. You know, he's probably in his 40s. But when you look at him, it's like people all just also just seemed older back then. It he, was harder. It was harder living, a lot of smoking. Uh, people weren't wearing uh, suntan, <laughs> you know. No, yeah. So they were like <laughs> like pieces of leather when they were out in California You know, so people aged harder back then. You know, I yeah, think. chain smoking, a lot of red meat, uh, you know, uh, nothing was diet, you know, everything was just, they know, people didn't probably have salads. I mean, and he was, he had done that but, run on, what's the, know, what's, what's the Western he did that they did the Mel Gibson? Uh, oh, Maverick. Yeah, they, he, had, he had a big run on Maverick. And uh, yeah, because he was he was dreamy. Yeah, of course. And he was still good looking and yeah. for him, but I'm saying like, Nowadays, you would you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that is like in their between like forty and fifty, yeah, or early fifties, uh, and even if they were younger, to find someone that isn't good looking to do it to to do a movie or a television show. I mean, you get the like one offs. So you get like Michael Chiklis doing like The Shield, or you get like uh, you know, or people will t- 
type cast for the type like uh, what's his face Tony Soprano. You know, you're you're you're, you're casting for yeah, a type. Yeah, but you're also surrounding him with other yeah other people like that. Yeah. Um, you look at a show like The Streets of San Francisco from the early '70s where it's the lead is. Um, Carl Malden, yeah, you know, and you but, know, he's, but he's with and, Michael Douglas, and he's with a right? very young Michael Douglas, and that was, and that's a way they started to try to get away with uh, Adam Twelve, and what's his face in it? Uh, I think Martin Pinsner, I think is the gentleman's name, the older guy. He was a good-looking guy, but the idea of like being an older cop, but not to say that every show or movie was like that back no. then, because you had like Starsky and Hutch, which yeah. those were like two good Beretta. Guys. You know, you had a lot of shows that were and very. Then, and then, you know, we had the rise of, like, the film school generation movies and, like, a grittier type movie. So then you started to get, like, the Pacinos and the De Niro yeah, Chips, you know, a lot of the, you know, like, a, I think it became a love boat. So as you got into the late 70s, you started to go by way of, like, hey, we'll, we'll cast someone who's dreamy again, you know. And then, like, you know, I feel like there's always been, like, Raymond Burr came back and did, like, Ironside in the 80s. Uh, you have stuff now where, like, Tom Selleck's, you know, He's the season yeah, guy doing yeah. blue bloods, but it's odd because of that era, which I personally love, that you didn't have to be a good looking. Yeah, you know, it was like you could be a regular looking yeah. guy, and if you had acted like again, like Telly Savalas, this guy was like a sex symbol to uh, endearing to women. Well, I mean, take it for instance, like to put into perspective. Okay, like a television movie, you had what Edward James almost play the. Uh, Walter Matthau character. There was a 1998 TV movie that Blake is referring to that they adapted this again, and you had yeah James almost playing Walter Matthau, and you had Vincent D'Onofrio yeah. playing the Robert, Robert Shaw character. But if you take into, I mean, granted, the 2009 remake, Tony Scott, Tony Scott, uh, John Travolta plays the bad guy, and then Denzel Washington yeah. plays. It's the a, like guy. an older, frumpier Denzel, but like it's. He's still good looking. I mean, but no, know. but he's still like he's still Denzel. Yeah, you know what I mean. And Denzel had like an you know not an action career in the sense of like like a Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis, or Stallone, or but he had done what's the one with the he had done actiony type thrillers yeah. and stuff, all kinds of stuff. So I mean, this is supposed to show you that even though it's an older, f- frumpier for, as a character, like he's made to look a little stockier, and he's made to look older in the movie. Like it's a, still yeah. Denzel Washington. Yeah, yeah. Not Walter Matthau. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because you think about how old is Walter Matthau supposed to be in this movie? He's probably supposed to be, like, in his late 40s, early 50s, you know? Maybe. Not even. You know? I mean, I don't I mean, think I guess he seems like he's been on the force for a while. You yeah, because he's, he's... Yeah, I feel, I feel like he's already passed 20 years. I know. But anyway, so... You know? So it's like you have this cast of these guys. I just guys. think it's amazing. Yeah, that, I mean, well, but it's also the That era. it's really, like, this gritty 70s kind of, like, action thriller. And Walter Matthaus are here. <laughs> yeah, and I and 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 that's nothing to, like I personally think there's not a detriment to him because in, oh no I love it yeah because in Charlie it's like you, it's it was a, it's more real I think even you know? t- I'm just saying like ten years later the like you wouldn't this would have been like Bruce Willis yeah or like Stallone yeah or so, somebody yeah. like that they would have you know I mean because even Michael like Michael <laughs> yeah I mean you have even like Charlie Bronson who you know I, I think he's a good looking guy fit as hell but I mean he's not. He kind of can almost fit in that scene. You know, he could be, some people could perceive him to be very good looking. But sure. then other people, like, he may not be the first person you think, like an Eastwood or something that's like a, you know, like a pinup kind of a star. And you yeah. had him doing. Well, he had all those, you're right, he had like all those 80s movies. Or 70s, you know. Uh, yeah, but even like, he had a big career with Canon and yeah, stuff. And yeah, because he like was still Cugette doing. And, uh, yeah, the. And uh, all the Death Wish yeah, sequels. Uh, uh, the, the, the Evil That Men Do or Ten to Midnight and all, all those great movies. Yeah. Uh, 
Murphy's Law. And Burt was still doing these kinds yeah, of Yeah, Burt Reynolds was doing all kinds of stuff at the time. And he was, you know, he, in the late 70s, he had a huge, or during the 70s was kind of his heyday. Yeah, of but doing, he was still but Burt was a good looking guy. in the 80s. You know. Yeah, I mean, he's. You know, he was again lady. He's certainly he's more tradi- both of traditionally. them. Traditionally. Yeah, well, you're a. Bronson's... Bronson, you know, I think Bronson is like... A little more in the Telly Savalas area where it's yeah. like, he could be very good looking. He had he could, like a sex appeal you know? to him. But he's a guy that in the in the 70s, he's in his 50s, and you look at him without a shirt on, he is, there's not like, he's like Bruce Willis, uh, Bruce Lee. There's like not one ounce of fat on uh, Charlie Bronson. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. But that's the era of these guys, like look at in this movie, Robert Shaw. I mean, would he be the first kind of person nowadays you'd cast as the bad guy? I don't know, but he's freaking amazing in this movie. He just come off doing um, the Sting, and this is right before, like you said. Uh, I mean, Jaws is seventy five the next year, yeah. And then in seventy seven, he does uh, a favorite of mine, Black Sunday, and then he does Force Ten and Navarone. I mean, Robert Shaw has an amazing career where he was also a novelist and a, and a playwright. Deep. He did The Deep, which is another great movie, which I think is seventy seven or so or seventy yeah, six. Definitely after this. Um, Robert Shaw was a novelist and playwright. He wrote a couple things, and he wrote something really cool called the 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 man in the glass booth and it was a novel they turned into a play then they turned into a movie starring maximilian shell and that's about a uh a, a nazi that's hiding out the uh a war criminal that gets uh taken or found out and he gets put on trial and they have to put him in a glass booth because they're afraid he's going to get killed but the 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 plot of the movie it's ambiguous as you don't know if he's a jew that was hiding out as a nazi or a nazi that was hiding out as a Jew and then you realize the character might not know he's so fucked up in the head that he could you know he could be having a split personality but anyway it's a great you know so you have this guy Robert Shaw who's an actor Shakespearean he's in From Russia with Love he won an Oscar for The Man of All Seasons Uh, you see him a lot of supporting roles probably best known maybe to our audience as Quint from Jaws Mm -hmm. but not only is he acting he's writing he's doing novels he's doing plays he's got an extensive career so you have this really amazing Ensemble cast, Martin Balsam, another guy who I love since a kid who's, you know, a, a very well-versed uh, uh, character actor who people may recognize as the P.I. who gets killed in the original Psycho. He gets stabbed going down the stairs. He, if people know the remake of Cape Fear, he's the... Gloomus. He, he plays, I think his character might be named Gloomus in that. In, in, in Psycho. Yeah. He's in the original Cape Fear. He, I think he's the captain in the movie, but then in the remake, he's like, he cameos as the judge that lets Maximilian Katie off, or he calls him Maximilian Caddy, and he has a big story. Great Twilight Zone episodes he's done, um, and he usually plays like a good guy, you know, it's, it's, it, or like a, a, like a warm-hearted, naive person, like an Ernie Borgnine kind of a guy, so it's fun to see him like play like a bad guy here, and he has a little shtick in the movie where he's, uh, he's sick. He's got a cold, so that becomes a this this really really minor bit of business that ends up uh, having a big payoff at the end. And he is one of the four guys uh, that hold up the train. You have Robert Shaw, who in the movie his name is uh, it's it's very well constructed, and I would say it's almost. I mean, it's got to be where they got um, where Quentin Tarantino goes and gets his plot from Reservoir Dogs from. He you know, doesn't. The names. He doesn't play the Loomis is, I think, the other guy. He plays Arbogast. Arbogast yeah, right. in in Psycho. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think this is the place where Quentin Tarantino probably got the idea for Reservoir Dogs, naming the guys the colors. Probably, yeah. And that goes back to the idea of if you're on a heist job and you don't know the people you're working with, and they have a spe- a, a particular talent, you don't want to know them in case the other guy's caught 
that one guy can rat on the other, so you don't tell anybody your alien, your real name, where you're from, and all that. So this movie, you have Robert Shaw's Mr. Blue, Martin Balsam, who I was just talking about, um, is Mr. Green, Hector Alonzo, who people know from. Um, He's the pretty woman. Yeah, he's the hotel <laughs> uh, guy in Pretty Woman. He owns the hotel. He's in a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, uh, and uh, he's in it. He's Mr. Gray. And then the last guy who is Mr. Wilson, or he's Wilson. He's Wilson from Home Improvement. Uh, from Home Improvement, the guy on the other side of the, the fence, fence, the neighbor. He plays Mr. Brown. So you have these four guys who get on the train and uh, and Earl Hindman. Yeah, Earl Hindman, and he and they they hijack the train and they all have special jobs, Mr. Uh, Mr. Green, who I said, Martin Balsam, he's an ex-motorman. Motorman are the guys who drive the train, so he knows his speciality is to be able to move the train around and do stuff. Mr. Blue, Robert Shaw, he's the leader of the pack. Hector Alonzo, Mr. Gray, is like an enforcer. We learn he's like, he was kicked out of the mob because he was too crazy, which yeah. I love. <laughs> he's the wild card. And then you have Mr. Brown, Earl uh, Hind- Hindman. I think it's Hindman. Yeah. Hindman, who was... Maybe wh- Hindman. Hindman from, um, from Home Improvement. He has a slight stutter, but he's also another enforcer, and uh, it's great. And then they just heist this train, and it's funny because the train is full of all, I wouldn't say minorities, but you have a whole demographic of, you yeah, know, there's a, there's a stereotypical Jewish guy that I think is like, what are we going to do here? You know, like <laughs> yeah. that, you know. There's, a black, Hispan- there's yeah. like a black guy who's kind of dressed up like a pimp. Yeah, you haven't you ever seen a sunset, one of my favorite lines in, in movie history, uh, who's an ex-nom vet. You have a, a woman who doesn't know how to speak English because she's Spanish. You know, yeah. she doesn't see then the other guy has to speak for her. You have a crazy woman who sleeps the entire... You have a whole... Kids, you know. Yeah, it's a, a very well-rounded... Yeah, woman with some kids. You have, like, this woman that's maybe homeless who's a, who sleeps through the whole thing. It's it's a, it's, a, it's a microcosm for New York City. Yeah, yeah. And um, Walter Matthau in the movie... Which, by the way, this movie has one of my favorite posters of all time. Oh, with the... With uh, the, the where it's just, like, the foreground... Like, the gun in the foreground. The machine gun. And just, like, everybody going crazy. And the gun's, like, pointed at a woman with two children. But you see all these people... And it's drawn. And, yeah, and, and it's, it's like in a, the subway car. It's, it's like, like a, a painting or a draw... Like, a, like, an illustration of, like, you know, shit hitting the fan. Like, everything breaking loose inside the subway car. And, like, the in the foreground this is like the barrel of the gun pointed at the woman holding the children and then just like everybody going crazy it's a beautiful it's such yeah. an awesome poster. check out our uh, you know our posts still have it and our, our website will have it under and our I post. guess it was done by an artist named Mort Kunstler Kunstler okay so I didn't know that until now but uh, that's till, pretty cool until <laughs> research but I've always loved that poster yeah. a good buddy of mine Steven uh, who you've brought up before, I think. I'm sure he's probably been brought up. Not Steve, who's Dave, who's who's Silver Bullet Dave's brother. Yeah, Steve. But, that Steve is the guy who wrote <laughs> our our theme. Yeah, but Steven, he has he he's always had this this poster framed, like in his office at home. And so I've always looked at it every time I go over his place. Oh, it's great. I'm like, I love this poster. <laughs> uh, and you have in the movie that Walter Matthau, he's a Lieutenant Zachary Garber, and he's just like, he's like almost the head of the, he's not a transit cop, but he's the head of like MTA police, I think. Uh, and you have in it also um, Jerry Stiller, uh, Lieutenant Rico, and uh, Rico Patron. <laughs> Rico. And he is, the, I think he's the head of the, 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 the transit police in it. And then you have also, you have Dick O'Neill, 
who plays the kind of the station master in this in the and he's a guy who I love who shows up he's uh, Cagney's father and Cagney and Lacey he's in a lot, a lot of, of 60s 70s 80s you know shows, TV and movies and movies. stuff you very recognizable he plays a station master in that and that was the equivalent of my dad's job on the railroad a station master being the guy who kind of sits in the tower and tells the trains coming in what track to go on and then he makes up the trains to leave you know with with people on them and then you have uh, James Broadwick, who plays the motorman uh, on the subway car that's hijacked. He's the father to Matthew Broderick. Matthew Broderick. We have Lee Wallace, as we've mentioned before, who pl- he's, he plays the mayor in this movie, who's the mayor from uh, Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, we have Tony Roberts, who is a guy that people used to see a lot in the 70s. He's in Serpico. He's in Annie Hall. Yeah. You know. Uh, he's in a few uh, Woody Allen yeah, movies. He's but a Woody Annie Allen Hall. guy. Uh, a cameo, a lot of cameos too in the movie. Doris Roberts, who plays the mayor's wife, she is the mother for Everyone Loves Raymond. Yes, and also Christmas is a grandma from uh, Christmas Vacation. Uh, grandma's Boy, which is one of my favorite. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, she, yeah, she's also uh, the grandma on Christmas Vacation. Uh, you have uh, Julius Harris, who I love. Who is the? He plays uh, Inspector Daniels in the movie, but he also he's the bad guy from Live and Let Die with the robotic arm. Yeah. He's in King Kong, Dilo De Laurent- Dilo, Dino De Laurentiis is King Kong. He's in Superfly. He's in a lot of black exploitation movies uh, in the seventies. He's in a great episode of Kojak, and he also I think he voices I think the in the Fat Albert Christmas special for anybody who knows that he voices the old man who. Who's like the landlord in it? Uh, he's a great guy, and there's a and there's yeah. other people in it. Beecher's uh, Wild, who who's in uh, Serpico, Cuckoo's Nest, Kenneth, Short Eyes, Kenneth, Kenneth McMillan, who Kenneth McMillan, I recognize instantly because he plays the Baron Harkonnen in Dune. Yeah, yeah, that, the big old fat <laughs> he flies yeah. around in the that, that that weird freaking freaky thing. Yeah, so that's I mean, probably the biggest role he ever had. Because looking at to see what else he was in, because yeah. like, oh, that's the guy from Dune, and it was always like. Uncredited or seemed like a lot of small parts. Yeah, but Dune seemed to be. I'll always remember. I'm a fan of. I'm not a huge David Lynch guy, but I, I have a lot of nostalgia for Dune. Yeah, yeah. And that character always made like it's so gross, and I always made the huge impact. It's actually frightening. And and I think it's the 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 reason that is for us is because we saw it at such a young age. It was so polarizing to see like Sting and all these guys in leather, (laughs) and then you see that guy floating around and like pus and (laughs) you know. But this so this this movie has. So many great care. Another guy, Tom uh, Petty, who plays Kaz at the beginning of this movie. Good old Tom Petty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, P E D I, and he uh, he's a guy you've seen a lot of seventies or sixties uh, like episodic television, but he's the yard master or he's the tower. the The Grand Central Terminal is GCT Grand Central Terminal, and he's the GCT Tower guy. And he's a guy that like like so many of these people in this movie, like me growing up going to work with my dad. These are all people my dad worked with, and yeah, people yeah. you'd see. This like these. This is like the embodiment of my dad in this film. These these people, yeah. completely on PC. I mean, you live in a world where you, that's you know, your office is like you know some shitty hundred year old you know booth uh, underground or like in a trailer. You're chain smoking. In this movie, like you know, only a, a woman only got the job a couple weeks ago. Well, yeah, that's you know, that's <laughs> another great joke where he's like, "I don't care about this, you know, affirmative or correct political correctness about this." Bro, I mean, it's just so funny. But the way the guy talks, it's just like these are half the guys I knew from yeah. my father growing up. These people, yeah. Well, they're gonna say with the misogyny, like there's all this stuff with that the woman now works 
in this little confined office space. And she's another recognizable person. Yeah, and he's got to be, you know, they keep on, like, watch his language, and he... <laughs> it's he, so fun. And so, like, all that's kind of played for comedy. Yeah. Now, so, like, that's making light of, like, the misogyny of uh, uh, a man's world and women liberation of, like, the 70s. Trying to turn that and, around, you know, yeah. So there's, like, that's played for comedy. Now... What I was saying earlier, there's stuff like that that's clearly played for comedy. Later, when we find out that there's a cop, an undercover cop, plainclothes cl- cop in the train. Yeah. And, you know, uh, one of the guys, the, the station manager or whatever. Oh, uh, what's his face? Dick O'Neill. He's like, why is he doing anything? You know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, and and Walter Matthau's <laughs> trying to explain, like, Justify. he's one guy against four guys with heavy artillery. He's like, it'd be suicide, uh, you know, and and the, and was like, and and that's and, you know, and that's not, and then it might even be abroad, you know, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. She's no match, <laughs> you know, like saying like he, this guy wouldn't be a match, and if it was a woman, like that wouldn't really wouldn't. So like that's the instance where I was like, you know, that's like a little bit of misogyny yeah. that wasn't played for comedy that just happened to be like the sentiment of the day, you know, like yeah. of the seventies. Yeah, I mean, and, and you're right; it's not being played for comedy, but I mean. For a certain extent, I don't want to say I love it, but you know, it's like it's 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 it, a time capsule. Yeah, I mean, I think that's you know, when you watch a movie like this, like we we're you know where we had this big explanation earlier about like political correctness and stuff. It's a it's it's a piece of history. Yeah. I mean, like it's a it's a little like a peek into the keyhole through uh, at like what like the mid seventies was like in New York City. Yeah, granted, it's a scripted, you know kind of Hollywoodized version. I mean, it's a fictional version. But like we've said uh, on the podcast before, like all art is kind of a, like a representation of what, of the time it was made. So yes, like it, it's enjoyable to see because it's a little piece of, you know, it's a little nugget of yeah. 1974. So looking at it from today, it's kind of ridiculous and we can la- we can chuckle at it. Uh, it. You know, but it's clearly not the sentiment of today. It's it's enjoyable because we're looking back at it. Yeah, you know? and, and it's and it's and this gets into a slippery slope where we start to, this can open the door of us, you know, injecting in our own uh, opinions, a slice of philosophy uh, of our philosophies about this, which we won't do, but it's very, you know, it, it's it's you look at the world today where it's very politically correct. People, for better lack of a better term, well, the world like, walk well, on eggshells. It's and, like when we we were, you know, we we did Monster Squad. Yeah, I think they say the word fag. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of movies that, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, even you know, <laughs> Warriors. You're going fag. I mean, it's like a different era. You yeah, could, you know, you you, you would the... get away with stuff, and then. You look at it now, it's, I mean, it's like going from people calling African-Americans from like Negro to Afro-Americans yeah. to African-Americans, you know, or, yeah. or, you know, you, you know, or, well, you know, I, I, especially with a movie like Jurassic Park, we yeah. just talked about, it. I said, you know, one of the great things about, I, one of the things I really like about doing the show is we get to, we're going through like the history of like the, the, the history of special effects and like movie magic, everything, labyrinth, all that stuff. That you know, the other thing about doing a movie, a show like this, is we're looking back at like a slice of life. Yeah, you know, and it's so, you know, and this is you know very rarely, maybe you know, I'm sure Dion would argue not 
often enough and uh and i I could and i would say i probably agree with it it's like we don't go back further past our lives yeah you know so like we kind of settle into what we were saying earlier in the podcast this 80s and 90s thing because that's when we were little but uh you know, sometimes when we get to go back even a little bit further and we see things like Rocky and this, and Dirty Harry and then Towering Inferno and then go back to like the mummy, 1959's The Mummy and stuff. It's really... It's fun. I mean, and I... Because when you watch a movie... Sorry to interrupt you. No, but no. Most, I do to you, you all the time. Because <laughs> like when we... You know, when you just watch a movie for entertainment value, you don't normally think too hard about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? You just like escapism. You wa- it's escapism. But when we sit down and we watch a movie for the show, like we have to pay attention to yeah. it. You know, because like we have to talk about it. Yeah. So it's it's you know, putting another, you know, another hat on, watching a movie through another pair of glasses, which is like, all right, like let's really watch this. That's movie our kind of it. yeah. Put on our like nostalgia hats and try to analyze. <laughs> you, you know, know. so I to say it's like I got to put it on. I feel I like to watch it. I like, feel like I watch it through like the eyes of what I would have been, how I would have watched it when I was twelve. When we're talking about a movie in like you know the early nineties yeah. or younger, but when you look into go to a movie like this, which is like we weren't even born yet, it's you know, more like looking at it, you're just like watching it with a more, you know, more detail, paying attention to the details more. It's interesting because for us, you know, we were born in the 70s, technically. Yeah. And we weren't alive for this stuff, but we were on the cusp of it. And I always say like decades bleed over into each other. So like 1990, 1991, you're still having 80s. You know, like it takes yeah, for me yeah. a couple of years for that yeah. decade to set in. There's that, you know what I mean? <laughs> the crossover. Yeah. Period. So even like in 1980, 81, 82, you're still having 70s disco and all before the 80s finds itself by like 85, it's completely changed. Music, culture. So for me, I felt like we, we were on the cusp of this era of complete, I always like analog, all kinds sure. of, you know. And uh, I am, these are the episodes that I tend to love the best when we do this show because I love this era, like you said. Mm-hmm. And I, there's so many of these movies, especially of the 70s, but even kind of before, but particularly the 70s, because it's, for us, when we were growing up, these were on in, you know, in exhaustion. These were all, movies of this era were just, you know, played on reruns, shows, TV. So it was almost like, because we had television, we kind of vicariously grew up in that era of this or the 50s because sure. they just played the crap out of them. So yeah. like a lot of these movies or, you know, um, and I, I don't know if that's still the case nowadays because I feel like you can lead very, even though technology is so much more vast, you can leave much more, you lead much more sheltered lives, especially kids, because you're not kind of forced to sit in front of a TV, see what's on and pick from a, a, a la carte menu as opposed to now where you, it's like there's too much, like I not to get on a tangent, but I saw you t- tweeted out recently something that I laughed at because it happens to me where half the time my dilemma with fucking television now is like, I don't know what I want to watch. Uh, and then when I start looking for shit to watch on demand, I spend the whole night looking for something to watch. <laughs> and by the time you're ready to watch something, you run out of time because there's too much. Oh, well, I watched it. Maybe I'll, I'll come back. Doop, doop, doop. Do I watch it? No. Bloop, bloop. You know, so it's like, so there's just too much. And it just, it, you get too many choices. Yeah. So I think now you can lead much more sheltered lives because if you know what you like, you can just sort, you know, uh, you can seek that out and that's it. Well, back here it was like you were kind of ex- for better or for worse, you were kind of exposed to everything. Yeah, and you well, may you not were, say you like this. You were a captive audience yeah, from exactly. what was put in front of you. And it was, know? and I, and I, and you know, and and so like we grew up, I think even more so me, uh, just through conversation, like 
watching like old sitcoms. Well, not more so me. You two just I think we grew up watching different different, different yeah because you watched stuff with your mom I, I watched wa- stuff I, with my mom and, and dad, I, yeah. but I was like you know I had what was available to me in Philadelphia and you had what was available to you in New Haven so like you watched a lot of the Honeymovers which was on but like I watched a lot of you know like I Love Lucy my favorite Marsh or my uh, yeah my favorite yeah, Marsh Courtship of Eddie's Father yeah like it was just uh, that was we, I grew up on reruns yeah, as did I you, you know? know so we just watched a lot of like 50s through 70s television yeah and it, and, I, and I think you know, all in the family. Yeah, all, all, every, yeah, everything on the taxi. You know, all that kind of, <laughs> all that stuff. Now it was just on. And that's, you know, so that's what we all grew up. On. So, so it's like, like yes, I, this, it, we, I, it's weird. We have a, we in a way we do have nostalgia for a period where we weren't yeah. alive. And and then I and then because of our parents were alive. I mean, and we have a direct connection to it. We and then also because of the the iconic films of the of of a certain era we identify with, like a Star Wars or. A, I don't know anything. Smoking the Bandits or whatever, you know. So it is. It's it's fun when we go back and watch do these these kind of movies, like say a seventies movie, where it's like it's so. There's so much going on in this movie, and it's just such a great. I don't know. I, I don't know how I can gush over this more because it's it. I think, I, like I said earlier, it, the movie's made by yeah. like the binary. Yeah. Performances well, of it's these also, little. This movie's a little bit tough for us to talk about because. Typically, we get a lot into like the making of the movie on the show. Yeah, and there's just not a lot of information out there. Yeah, for us to find about this. So it might seem that might you know hopefully it doesn't seem this way, but like it could seem like we're kind of beating around the bush here. I mean, we could talk a little. There's a yeah, little. We're gonna, yeah, we're gonna we'll yeah. get into it, but uh, there's just not. It's just you know the '70s, the the era of like the making of movies, which we talk about a lot on this show, was like the '80s with the special effects, and you started to get like the making of documentaries about stuff. Yeah, like this peek behind the curtain of what was going on behind movies. You'd get a little bit of it with like you'd have like a ten minute behind the scenes that would maybe play at the tail end of the Sunday night movie. Yeah, you know, like if Taking Pelham One Two Threes comes out in 1974. In 1974, if there was a Sunday night movie, they'd, they'd and, they need to, and they need to fill a little more time yeah, they'd have for a commercial break, yeah. they might show this as promotion. Like Warner's used to do that. Warner's it'll be would like make a the little... director, you know, Joe Sargent and Walter Matthau being interviewed about it, and then some behind the scenes, like yeah. scratchy, really, sixteen yeah, millimeter, really movie. terribly shot you get with them, the lights. And sometimes you'll get them on a DVD now. Yeah, like period stuff. Feature. Like there's one I've seen famously for Bullet or. Uh, I think even Dirty Harry, where it would just be like a, it was almost like a promotional reel. They would yeah. shoot during the filming, talk to the people on set that they would put out as a promotion. But for the most part, there isn't a whole lot of information about that the that kind of stuff. The way there is with the movies from the eighties and nineties, yeah. where like we sit there and it became its talk, own niche. We talk for fucking three hours about yeah. the Raiders of Raiders the Lost Ark, which is not Wars. even that far after this, or Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars is probably the beginning of it. Yeah, that's what I like, think. Because the, they realize that there's a there's it was like people will digest <laughs> this and love it. cinema in a way that like people let's show how we did it because it's amazing. Yeah. Um, this movie, uh, directed by Joseph Sargent, who directed a lot of TV stuff, uh, a lot of stuff before this, but he, for sleepover fans, for sleepover movie fans uh, of our age, they, I think most notably Nightmares, which seems to be coming up a lot. Nightmares. Also, it came up a lot uh, recently because on my Score to Death podcast, a couple we- uh, a couple episodes ago, I interviewed uh Craig Saffin, 
who has been talked about on this podcast for Rima Williams and Last Starfighter. Okay. But he also did the music for Nightmares. <laughs> Nightmares. <laughs> Mealy Westerfest. Ow! Joe said we only will get. And uh, Jaws, The Revenge, The Infamous. That's the th- that's the like the fourth, fourth one. one, yeah, with Lance with, Guest and Michael, and Michael Caine, Caine <laughs> and uh, uh, what's his face, uh, 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 Mario Van Peebles. Mario Van Peebles, yeah, from nineteen eighty seven. But he directed a bunch of stuff. I'm just pointing out, a yeah, couple, yeah, yeah, a couple like movies that you know I think every everybody that's our age has probably seen. Uh, music, iconic score in a way that. The people that love film scores love this score. Not iconic in the way that everybody knows this, like, uh, good, bad, the ugly theme, or Star Wars theme, or the Jaws theme. But like, this is like a coveted score. Yeah, film score, film score monthly. When they finally, which is a magazine, a publication, probably not a publication in the traditional sense anymore, uh, website, um, but. When they were going to issue, start issuing like CDs, the first time this was issued on CD was through Film Score Monthly. Yeah, um, it's a very rare CD. I tried to get it. Yeah, because I own it, and it's 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 hard to get this, uh, this score. But like, kind of like a beloved score uh, was done by David Shire. Uh, to see, that's just what I was going to say. How do you use it? I I pr- I've been pronouncing it David Shear. Be- because if you look at like it's like if you look at English pronunciations, yeah. they say a- 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 I would only say I would only say Shire because of Tyler because he was married, married to, to uh, Tyler Shire. Uh, yeah, and then but then I always pronounce it Shire because if you say like um, Lancashire, C H I R E, we say Shire, but then the English say Shire Yorkshire. Yeah, so. I've always, but then I was like, you know, but then if I look at his wife or his wife at the time, Tyler Shire, Who so I don't know. obviously was Adrian and Rocky. Yeah. And uh, the sister of Francis Ford Coppola. And uh, mother to Jason Schwartzman. Mother to Jason Schwartzman. But there was, David Shire's not the father to no, Jason they, Schwartzman. This was her fir- I think this was her first husband. Yeah. And they were married at the time during this. And then she, you know, remarried and then had David uh, to a Schwartzman, I think a producer maybe, and then they had Jason Schwartzman from the room. The, but he, uh, David, David, interesting, ca- uh, interesting catalog, interesting resume of scores. The conversation, which was Coppola, yep, two thousand ten, yep, the- twenty ten, uh, the sequel to two thousand one in the eighties, yeah, Return to Oz, yeah, Short Circuit. Love it. Monkey Shines, one of my Love favorite it. George yeah. Romero movies. And then Zodiac. The recent movie with, uh, what's his face? Uh, b- b- Robert Downey Jr., but it's the um, Fight the... Club. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Uh, Fight Club director. <laughs> yeah, I forget his name. <laughs> Alien 3. Yeah, that, what's his face? Uh, David Finch, Fave David Finchner. Finch, Finch, Finchner. And Finch, this is, Fincher. yeah, this theme for the... Uh, we talked. We got into seventies themes about a bit when we did the Dirty Harry podcast because we talked about Lalo Schifrin, who Blake and I both adore. Uh, and Lalo Schifrin's sound—he's a prolific soundtrack person. Yeah. And then we talked about Lalo again for Edge of the Dragon recently because he, he, yeah, or he scored Edge of the Dragon, and uh, and he also scored the Beguiled that we did last year, the Clint Eastwood movie. And but he that may, score is less. Yeah, it's in less this Yeah. <laughs> yes. As uh, uh, Enter the Dragon and, and uh, Enter the Dragon score, which I think is 70. What's, what year was Enter the Dragon? I forget now. 70, 71, 72? 70, I think. Yeah. But we're going to get uh, our. Get out one of and- our PAs to get on it. <laughs> but the, but we brought up him particularly, the reasoning for Dirty Harry, because his Dirty Harry score is, 
in my opinion, one of the best scores of all time. But people cite it as one of the most iconic 70 scores because... 73. 73. So just before this. So uh, Lalo's score for Dirty Harry kind of opens the floodgates to a style that you start to see happening in the 70s. And that score for Dirty Harry ends up being inspiration. John Carpenter cites it for his uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Yeah. And a lot of people cite it. You have this score here, David Shear, David Shire's score for for taking a pound one, two, three. And it's one of those ones that people don't readily know, say, but if you're a, a, a fan of 70s cinema and 70s scores and 70s funk, this score is amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the movie just starts kind of like Lalo's score to Magnum Force. The opening to that has amazing song that just starts to highlight the song. This starts where it's just the credits are. It's the credits to the score, and this this the opening. The theme for this movie is out of sight. It's amazing. It's a two minute piece. Uh, it's off the wall. It's really amazing. It's so funky. Uh, I actually consulted one of our um, Blake and I, our friend, a jazz musician, Matt Garrison, for his opinion on it because of what's going on in it. And you know, it's a '70s funk score. It's, they have a jazz big band doing 70s funk, but it's an extended jazz big band, which means there's lower brass, there's baritone, tuba, French horn, but they also have a trumpet section, they have a saxophone section, they have a trombone section, and um, they've got this asinato um, funk beat, and there's weird things going on in the melody. It's very avant-garde, but they have it's an intervallic melody. And what intervallic means, and Blake probably knows a lot of this more than I do because Blake plays the guitar for a living, so he knows music stuff. Intervallic means there's wide jumps in notes, so you can go from a high note to a low note. And there's no real rhyme or reason in the theme. And that's what makes it so crazy. So it's like a, the theme is like a 12-tone rose of short bursts of various like shaped yeah. melodies. So you have the theme, dun, dun, dun. And then you have the, all these different horn sections just doing, you know, great, dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 And it's just all over the place, but it's so funky. You just can't, it's almost, it almost is a theme of the movie where it's like, uh, it's like a train getting going and it's yeah, going, yeah. and then as it's going, halfway through the song, you hear this, the, the you know, this, the high, the cymbal come in, the crash cymbal, you know, so it's like a train getting momentum and it's suspense and it's getting the adrenaline up and it's almost like getting you ready for something. And it's just, it's so funky. And in my opinion, is really just a, a stellar example of like how awesome like 70 scores were, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, there was a certain, there was a certain amount of production value in 70s music that didn't go too far into the 80s. And, and that's true. Uh, that that and filled the gamut. That had a lot to do with just the changing of technology. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the digital Since. era, synths start to become uh, Damn e- easier to pandering. use. <laughs> and you started to get uh, processors in a very primitive form, but started to be able to, you know, have uh, sampled sounds and stuff into the 80s. So then you start to get that, that 80s new wave kind of sound and then even some scores obviously like Vangelis and uh, Tangerine Dream but then a lot of scores kind of go with uh, into like a synth era and that almost becomes the yeah that becomes the sound of the era in the 80s yeah so it's not only are you getting um, in fact I was just talking about this with a little bit with John Harrison who's on the most recent episode of uh, Score to Death the podcast because I was talking about his score for Day of the Dead, the George Romero movie. Great. About how, like, 
yes, it's so much of the time that you could say that it's dated because of the synth sound, but the production value, in my opinion, of that score is so great that it sounds much more akin to like the way pop mu- like the 80s pop music sounded, you know, like for the fact that there wasn't that big of a budget, I was basically saying like, it sounds really good yeah, yeah, that yeah. score. And it was like, and it's all because of the technology. In the 70s though, you get, you know, sure that you get like the disco era, but like if you listen to like, uh, I Will Survive yeah. by Gloria Gaynor, I think. Yes. Who I've met, lovely lady. I love that song. It's one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. Uh, not just because of like, you know, the catchiness and the melody and the theme the, of the movie and, and the, the song. And the sentiment of the song. But when it, when I listen to that song, I'm like, man, they really made music back yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's got like the full string orchestra, yeah. you know, playing behind it, the the orchestrated arrangements for pop music back then. I mean, it's even amazing. if you listen to like Billy Joel or Alton John. Yeah, or they anything, had it going. You know, like all that, it's just like the produ- they really produced music back then. I mean, you if you have an era... I mean, you know, the black exploitation films of the 70s were huge. You have yeah, well, I mean, that, you know, obviously, like, Curtis even Mayfield. Even if you take, like, the Curtis Mayfield stuff, uh, uh, like, Isaac the, Hayes. Uh, the Isaac Hayes stuff, like, uh, the James Sha- Brown. If you take the most, like, iconic of those scores. Yeah, Superfly or Shaft, yeah. You know, like, that is a tour de force of music I mean, production. you have a whole, <laughs> I mean, you have a whole, you have a whole jazz Ba- big band and you have a sound sa- I mean it's like the, the Sinatra years where you're playing with like an 80 piece orchestra yeah it's just and it's so amazing and it's all live I mean it's all people playing it's like uh, even you, you can you can slag off say like say the production value of say uh, black exploitation films like not so much Shaft because that was kind of big budget but like Black Caesar or Hell Up in Harlem or these movies, Blackula, but like the 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 you had Earth Wind the Fire doing some of these. Sure. Stuff. You have some of these James Brown Trouble Man. And you know I mean, well, uh, that's Mar. I th- that's what is that Marvin Gaye Trouble Man? That but we'll, Man. we will have uh, I think Black Caesar, one of those movies. Anyway, in the coming episode, I'm going to be talking to Barry Dvorzon. Holy crap! Who did the Warriors score? Yes, but, and that's another yeah. But he was the one that got James Brown. He was the music supervisor. He's the one that got and worked with James Brown on that Larry Cohen, those early Larry Cohen black exploitation movies. Uh, Troll Man is Marvin Gaye, but but Brown did a lot of uh, of those era, and it's it's just such an amazing era of of especially the Curtis Mayfield stuff. Uh, I brought up Short Eyes before because one of the actors in here is in Short Eyes. That's a movie not a lot of people know, but he has a great soundtrack to that. Uh, again, Superfly. A whole, there's there's a whole amazing era of like analog funk with 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 yeah sound i mean and it but transcended I'm, to everything even yeah. even 70s pornography you had live musicians <laughs> doing you you had studio well, that's bands. my point is like you had you know like they were uh, you know of course you think of i think for most people when they think of movie music they think of orchestral symphonic yeah. music because that's the way it was for so long. You had Bernard Herrmann, uh, you know, even Jerry Goldsmith. And we just talked about that recently because we were talking about how in the 80s you got away from that but then somebody strove to have, remember what movie did we Back say? Back to the Future maybe. Was it back then? I thought it was something particularly where they were like they wanted to have it well, be an orchestral score, and people weren't doing that at the time. And people yeah. like that might not be the best idea, but they held, and it was very iconic that they did yeah. that. What movie was that? I don't know, but we did talk about it. We did talk about the importance of how much Zemeckis wanted a huge orchestra for Back to the Future. Yeah, that's why I thought you were talking about Back to the Future, but 
so when you think of an orchestral score, like yes, you imagine a big, like booming classical orchestra, but like seventies. When you add that to like seventies funk, yeah, like even like a, like something like this, or even you know if you get funkier into the black exploitation, which you were just talking about, Black Caesar is the movie that I'm going to talk about with, uh, uh, your man. Yeah, well, <laughs> Barry DeVore's uh, yeah, because he's the one. Great that, movie, by the way. He's the one that got uh, James Brown to come in and do it, and he tells a very funny story about trying to work with James. Brown. That's not a tease. <laughs> Go check out this upcoming episode of uh, that'll be, in a, that'll be in a, in a that's mu- exciting. That'll be in a month or two. Well, that'll be maybe when this is. But this because is Barry came from a pop background, yeah, and so he's the one that talked Larry Cohen. It's like you know, like you're doing a movie about the streets, man. Like we should get like we should put music in that people that would be in this movie would listen to, you know, like popular. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so, so the, the idea of having like the orchestral score, yes. But then when you apply, when you apply that much, that many players, that much production value into like popular music, pop music, something like funk or like the, or score like this, which is like kind of this brilliant, uh, cross section of, you know, slightly classical, maybe not in the traditional sense, but like jazz and funk. I mean, it's just, it's, it was a great time for music. I mean, in terms of that, you stuff. have, you have like people like Stevie wonder, like revolutionizing seventies funk with his albums from, uh, music of my mind, going through talking book all the way up where he's like doing this stuff himself. I think up until like songs, the key of life when he finally brings in musicians, but he was doing it Beck style. And that was for, he was on Motown, which is Detroit uh, uh, labels. But then you have on the other side of it, Isaac on Stax records. And Stax is from like Memphis. And that's the other side of the coin. And you have these guys coming out really, I mean, like luckily Isaac Hayes, you know, um, you know, he was just like a, uh, I think he was a piano organist for like, uh, who, what is that? Green Onions is um, Booker T. Booker T and the MGs. You know, and then like, he's like, you know, give me a, give me my own. And I think he does. Maybe is this, his might be Black Moses or Hot Buttered Soul is his first album. And this kicked the door open to this this era. And you have guys like Curtis Mayfield doing like a soundtrack for um, for Superfly where he releases Freddy's Dead early so he can get people to like the song to then go see the movie but then he was so worried about glamorizing the drug uh world and the hookers and the prostitutes and the drug dealing that he added lyrics to freddy's dead to show that like it's it's almost like a cautionary tale you yeah, know yeah. freddy's a pusher and he's dead now or he's a you know and then when you see the movie it's only an instrumental in the movie and james brown they had these successful careers and and then you have guys like lalo Schifrin or here david Shear who are doing funk scores that are just as amazing and and a lot of them have fallen to the wayside because people don't know i'm sure there's people we're not you know uh, particularly making note of that that did also very heavy funk scores that are more composers like lalo and this but it's it's like you know like it's just it's again that's like a reflection of the time this is an urban New York movie, yeah. so tr- trying to play into like the urban sound, which in the seventies was yeah. was a little bit funkier than say a John Williams type score. Yeah. I mean, not to say John Williams couldn't do that. I mean, no, you know, John Williams did all kinds of scores. He's best known for like the stuff he did for Spielberg and Lucas, which is. But he started out early. He was doing like I think Lost in Space and stuff. John, yeah, he did like the Lost in Space. You know, it's like I think he's billed as like Johnny Williams, but it's like so this this soundtrack is so amazing, and particularly the. 
the, the opening theme, and then also maybe the end credits, which is a variation, different arrangement, and they do it a little differently, which is kind of cool, and it's a little longer. But, uh, so the movie starts is that, like I said, the hi- train gets hijacked. Walter Matthaus, the, uh, one of the head cops, he is, he's giving a tour to these Japanese... Um, uh, the head of like the Japanese uh, transit system like, sub- subway from system. Tokyo. Yeah. yeah, they're over, and it becomes this running gag. Where kind like, of a way, for, I guess, to they wanted to come and see how New York does it because New York uh, efficiently was probably yeah. obviously an older subway system yeah. than what they had was probably more recently built in Tokyo at the time. So he's giving he's giving a tour, and uh, again, this is a great example of what we've been talking about the past couple episodes: ex- exposition to action, because th- there's great. Uh, at the beginning of this movie, there's great ways they layer in exposition to let us get us up to par with how stuff works. So, for example, you have Walter Matthau giving a tour to these uh, Japanese delegations uh, from the Tokyo Transit System. So he's explaining what the controller means and what the board means, and how. They, and then the, on the on the subway level, you have one of the the uh, conductors. It's his first day on the job. So he, another guy's watching him. So he's exp- he's saying to the guy that he's because he's being quizzed how stuff works. I have to look out and make sure no one. I have to give a signal. I have to beep the. So it's, you get it's getting people up very quickly up to to, yeah. to speed on what you need to know how to move it to work. And the, the plot goes really quick. I have a girl that I work with. Her name's I'm not going to give her a last name, but her name's Gabrielle. In the 70s, she worked as a child actress, very low level. She's in The Godfather 2. She's in Harry and Tonto, the Art Carney movie, and she's in The Taking of the Pelham One Two Three. In the taking of the Pelham One Two Three, she's like five or six. She was on the um, subway platforms at the beginning when the guys were getting on, and she says the only thing she really remembers is the food was really good and it was like really hot down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you could see her in the Godfather Part Two. She's in the scenes where it's the flashbacks where De Niro is and his friend are watching the. It's not the vaudeville show, but they're watching the show, and then that guy gets up and they yell at him to, tur- to sit down. It turns out to be Don, whatever his name is, in the white. Yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, no, no, it's a Don, it's Don Joe Blow. You can be after his name. <laughs> I'm the only guy who doesn't remember his name. But she's the girl with the red pigtails. She's huh. got like red things in her hair. So she, it's funny that we had a connection to this movie. She was in this, and I was like, oh, you were. So I always try to talk her head off about. Yeah, you know, but I don't, Dion, I don't yeah, remember. Yeah. Leave me the fuck alone. <laughs> I, I was six remember. years old. Uh, <laughs> so you get a lot of exposition through action. Now at the time. Which we've talked about before in the uh, in the the b- 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 uh, the weekend the Bernie's podcast. New York was going through some shit, and we, we don't need to completely go through this again. But by the mid seventies, New York was basically going bankrupt. You had it's important that there was a fiscal crisis, yeah. because it's one of the reasons why there's this debate of like should, should we pay them? should we pay them <laughs> or just let them keep the train. Yeah, you know. and it's and at the time you, New York's going broke, stuff's falling apart. There was a huge. Uh, emphasis because of particularly Robert Moses in the past 50 years prior to the 70s of upgrading the highway transit system and cutting up the Bronx and, and carving out Long Island and you could say you can credit Robert Moses with basically inhabiting Long Island in suburban wise and all the urban renewal that was going on so there's so much going on there's and since particularly because of Robert Moses, there's an emphasis on the highway system. He purposely uh, tried not to get money funded the transit system. So by the 70s, the transit system, which is like almost 100 years old by that point, is, is, is falling apart. It's broke. It's gritty. It's dirty. Stuff doesn't work. And that becomes almost like... Uh, an example of the entire New York City system by that time in the 70s, you know, there's a lot of racial tension. There's a lot of um, stuff going on because of the, the you know, the, the Vietnam uh, protests and stuff. 
uh, a lot of stuff we touched on in the Randy Jurgensen. We did an interview with him, who is a, a cop turned actor who talks about a lot of '70s cinema in the '70s uh, social problems, particularly in New York and across the country, that translated into '70s cinema. And when you get to this movie in '74. You know, uh, they're running out of money. Yeah. They can't I mean, pay really, the cops. Like seventy-five is when it like it's like officially. Yeah, they lay right. off like fifteen hundred cops. But so this is like the leading up to it. And yeah, then, and then later, like in the you know after the seventy-five, seventy-six or so, you get that famous headline, which is like Ford to City drop dead. Yeah, because, because Ford's like I'm not. We're not going to bail out New York City. New York wanted to, to declare bankruptcy, and 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 Ford's like you know Washington is like hey you know what you know you have your own problems up there you know we don't agree with stuff if it's you know, political, partisan uh, politics or whatever. So New York was falling apart. I mean, you know, garbage was being piled up because they weren't paying like, you know, the sanitation workers. Uh, you could see stuff rotting. So that is a big theme here where it's kind of, you know, it's it's accepted. And it's now starting to become a joking thing. So when you have the, you have this prior to this then, when they try to shoot this movie, at first New York City doesn't want them to shoot the movie in the city because they're worried because of at the time, again, if you go back and listen to our interviews with Randy Jurgensen about what was happening in the city with crime, there was a real concern about uh, factions like the FALN, the Black Liberation Army, the BLA, uh, all these different um, like domestic terrorism organizations. There was a real concern that they could actually try to take the city and either, you know, uh, it turned into like Escape from New York, you know, like actually take the city for ransom, hijack it. Yeah. Which is uh, basically what the Warriors are trying, what the, 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 the what Cyrus the, is trying to do with the Warriors Cyrus at Cyrus the beginning. Cyrus is trying to do at the top get, of the Get Warriors. all the little gangs together, become a big gang, and they can take the city over. And that is something you see, uh, like the Weather Underground, we're blowing, you know, blowing shit up, you know, the social, uh, the FLA, FALN blowing up the Franz Tavern downtown. You know, the, the, these they, they say they're for these, you know, whatever cause you're for, but at the end of the day, they're, they're setting off bombs in areas where not only police are getting hurt, they're supposed enemies, but, you know, c- civilians are getting hurt too. So that's a real concern in, in, in 70s era is that, like, you know, there's these, these organizations that were trying to do these kind of things. So when you get to this and you have uh, a movie company come to New York and say, we want to... Uh, you know, shoot a movie like this. We have Mayor John Lindsay at the time in the 70s who was realizing New York was going broke. So his idea was to pump revenue in the cities. Hey, let's start giving tax breaks to a lot of these movies. So he started the influx of like Serpico, French Connection, The Godfather, a lot of movies, again, I keep saying Randy Jurgensen worked on to get uh, movies to shoot in the city for, for you know, and, and get awareness up and bring some tax revenue and all that kind of a thing. So since these movies start being shot in the city, when taking the Pelham one two three comes and they want to shoot the, at first the 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 bureaucrats are very skeptical like you know i don't know if that's the best idea for us to have a movie that is about someone hijacking <laughs> a subway train yeah. because that could theoretically really happen in the 70s so they were worried that it'd be a copycat and that ends up happening years later in money train that denzel washington movie not denzel washington that wesley snipes movie with um What's his face from Cheers? Yeah, uh, Woody Harrelson. Woody Harrelson, where the two of them rob like a muddy train, and I think somebody ended up co- trying to really do that in real life. So you could see that the the bureaucrats did have a, a valid concern. Yeah, so much so that after the movie was made, they they changed the call. Yeah, you never had again a train leaving at Pelham for one two three because they were worried <laughs> people would get three because they were afraid that somebody would try to copycat yeah. the movie. So the production company went and looked around, and they looked at like DC. They looked at like. 
Toronto. They looked at maybe even London. They looked at all the other place, cities that had a subway system, and they're like, listen, we can't find a subway system that would adequately double for New York City. They came back to like, please, you know, will you please? And they directly petitioned the, the Mayor Lindsay. Mayor Lindsay, he said, sure. And what he did is he says, listen, there's an unused portion of track uh, in Brooklyn, which is now near the, what is it, the Brooklyn, I think the Transit Museum, the Subway Transit Museum. And they're like, you can use that. You can rent it out. You give us uh, $250,000. You can rent it out. We'll give you workers. We'll give you cop, you know, cops. We'll give you some unused train equipment. And I think they had to take out like an insurance policy of like 75000 or something because they're really working down there. Like all the workers had to wear like masks, you know, the, the, the crew because they're working yeah. in these conditions and all that kind of a thing. So begrudgingly, they let them shoot the movie. And there was also this thing, I guess that came up originally in the book, which I think was really a, um, uh, oh, I don't know what you call it, like uh, uh, oversight that there's this thing called the dead man switch, which shows up in this movie, which is also something that uh, you see later on in a lot of movies, like Speed uses it at the end of Speed, but it's kind of laughable in Speed. And the <laughs> idea behind a dead man switch is, which they explain again, exposition through action, in this movie is if you got a, con- uh, a motorman, the guy who's driving the train in his little cab, he has to depress a, a lever and turn it to start the train. He's got to keep it depressed. The idea depressed. The idea being if he were to drop dead of a heart attack or something were to happen, if he let go of the thing, the train would automatically dump, meaning the air would be released quickly out of the, the, you know, the, the brake lines and the thing would break. And that's also the thing with signals, too. On a train line, there's red signals and there's green signals. So if you're going like 80 miles an hour and you blow through a red signal, the train's going to dump because they have sensors on the tracks. So that's why in this movie, near the end of the movie, they want them to have the turn green. They have green all the way down so the train won't dump. So in the book, this kind of caught, there was a way which they called in the book called the gimmick. And that's the twist in this movie. How they're going to get away is they found out a way to jimmy rig the dead man switch so... If they disengage it, the train can go without anybody at the helm. And that's how they end up. I'm cutting to the end, but that's the yeah, yeah. the joke in the movie. Because then, then, you know. Well, it's funny because it comes up with, like, well, what if they did this? Yeah, Jerry like, Stiller there, is there's like. A there's a police officer mm. who's like, well, then, well. Julius Harris. Maybe they got up. Maybe they just got off the train. And they're like, no, that couldn't happen because you need somebody to. Yeah, the dead man switch. Yeah, the dead man switch. You need some, there needs to be somebody. Julius Harris is like, what's that mean? He's like, well, dead man <laughs> switch. And they explain to you what I just said. Yeah. And then, 10 minutes later, <laughs> they find out that's <laughs> what they really... Mouth, I was like, well, wait, maybe... That's the, that's the angle. And the, and the cop's like, you told me they couldn't do that. He's like, well, what if they figured out a way around it? Turn this car around. Turn this shit around. Um, so that's the plot of the movie. And um, let's see. How do we jump back in here? The, well, I mean, I, I would say, like, you know, we're talking about the comedy of this movie. You know, part of it... Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about how they played the kind of the misogyny stuff as comedy. I would say maybe, uh, you know, I don't think that this would, I don't think this is racial humor, but the idea of like the people, the Asian guys you were talking, the Japanese guys you were talking about earlier. They Walter Matthau's giving this They tour. don't say anything to, the whole time. And, and they're and just they like also, looking around. Yeah, they also, he's like, come this way and they don't follow. So it's quickly, they, it's assumed. It's that assumed they don't... by Walter Matthau and the viewer. <laughs> yeah. That they don't speak English. Yeah. And so... <laughs> Which is it's great. He starts giving him a tour and he starts interjecting these little... Yeah, and like he's walking... Well, the first point is he's walking away and he's telling about like the history of the subway system or whatever. And then he turns around and they didn't come with him. So that's like a funny joke. And then he comes back. So there's a little... There's this stuff all the way through and they he introduces them to the... 
he wants to introduce him to the Jerry Stiller character, blah blah blah. But then when kind of shit hits the fan, and like they discover that it's, uh, you know that the, there's a hijacking of of the train, and they're like, well, they still have these guys here. Uh, yeah, in the, in the control room. Yeah, and he goes to somebody. He's like, hey. You know, take these monkeys up too. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think he means monkeys as a derogatory no, term. Like no. he's not like you know, like I guess as, as you know, a racial term. Yeah, I, I think, think he's, he's just saying like take these. You know, because it's, because before that you have uh, Dick O'Neill's like you know what are these Chinamen doing in here? And and, and he's like that's they're not Chinese. And he's like okay, the Orientals. And now I don't even Which think you like, say Orientals. That's not yeah, that's not appropriate. Now. You know, but so he says take these monkeys. Which like I said, I don't, I don't think it's any kind of like. Directly director, just like a funny, like yeah. take these take these goons, goons. These, yeah, yeah, these yeah, guys, and they're like, "Oh no, we can find." <laughs> and they speak perfect for English. Like, no, we can find our way back to. Yeah, them. they're like, you "Thank know. you, Lieutenant Garber. It's been a most, you know, most uh, enlightening." And they all, you know, and it's so the the payoff there is that for for the first half hour of the movie, these guys have known everything they've been saying. So when he's walking through, like this guy does the 423 and over here, and he's part of the train. We get trains, we get trucks, board, we, we get the, the Gabaguka and the Mukalaka. He's just saying words and it's hilarious, yeah. you know? And it's just that he, you know, and, and it's the assumption of his own ignorance that he thought yeah. they wouldn't be able to, you know, you have that, you have um, one of, for me, one of the funniest moments in this movie, which is also, this is 74, you have, come up again in in 1977 in Smokey and the Bandit there's a scene where uh Jackie Gleason who's who's like the 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 he's I, you know he's he's the dumb dumb-witted backwoods sheriff down there uh he is talking to an African-American sheriff on the radio the entire time because he's in hot pursuit of, of of the bandit and then that sheriff tries to go after the bandit himself crashes his car and his car is like hanging off a gully and then Jackie Gleason shows up and he walks him he's like hey boy he's like you know do you know where Sheriff Branford is and then the guy looks up at him he's like I am Sheriff Branford and he's an African-American and Jackie Gleason stands there and he goes for some reason, I thought oh, you yeah, seemed yeah. a lot taller on the radio. And then he walks away and he says to himself, like, oh, what's this world coming to? And it's played as a joke. And, I mean, I find it funny. And I don't think, you know, I don't find it funny because it's, I find it funny because of the context of the situation because the guy, yeah. you know, how he's saying it. In this movie, at the end of the movie, <laughs> it's the same joke. And it's funny, too, because clearly Walter Matthau is not. A racist in this movie at all. I don't think anybody's a racist. It's just how people yeah. act. There's no indication so, that there's any kind of racism. Yeah, like so, you said misogyny, maybe. Yeah, but not. But I, but I even, racist. but I don't even think the misogyny is intended to be like. You know what I mean? It's like it's inherent, and and I'm not, you know, saying, you know, nay or yay towards that. But at the end of this movie, when he meets Inspector Daniels, who's Julius Harris, yeah. he finally he's been talking to the guy on the radio for like so long. Uh, Walter Matthau, when he shows up to him, he's like, "I'm looking for Inspector Harris." And he's sitting in the passenger. He goes, I am Inspector Harris. He goes, I thought you, I envisioned you to be a lot shorter. I, I don't know what I thought. <laughs> he gets back in the car and it's the same joke where he's like, you know, he didn't, he didn't think the guy would be yeah. an African-American because how he sounded. There's this, this point where they've made the deal with the train and they're going to deliver the, the, deliver the money. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with, about that. But then they've asked for their demands. They're going to give us the green light all the way down to South Ferry. Yeah. Which is like, Really, the southernmost stop on the Manha- six on Manhattan, Manhattan guess, yeah, uh, all the way before you know, it's way down by the financial district, right at the end of the island of Manhattan. Uh, and so there's all this thing like you got to give us time to prepare the train, uh, prepare the tr- the lights, blah 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 blah. So Walter Matthaus goes to the guy like, "Tell me when they start moving." So all of a sudden, the train starts moving, and the guy goes. Uh, 
they got her. She's moving. Who's moving? The train. And then so he, then there's all these, because the way the movie is like, there's this web of like, you have Stiller in his office. You got Garber in like that control room, which is Walter Matthau's character. Yeah. Yep. Then you got Still uh, Dick O'Neill, which is the station master, who's also there yelling and yeah. you know. And then you got Jerry Stiller's character, who's the go. head of the transit. He's cops. in his office, yep. and then you got like uh, you have like an officer in the tunnel. Yeah, who's watching you, everything. Yeah, under then, CB. And then you have Walkie. I mean, uh, it's, it's Inspector Daniels, who's like the head cop who on the platform, and it's a perfect. Uh, microcosm also in the old days you have to patch people in on yeah. cbs and you know what i mean it's like patch them in turn them on you yeah know, turn so them it's this all journal. like all this information has to be relayed it's very real every other people yeah. everybody else so it's, it's like kind of part of the movie it's like a, it's like a, a game of telephone no pun yeah, intended is that everything needs to be so that he gets <laughs> so then mathow gets on the on the horn with uh, stiller and he's like she's moving it's those like, who's moving <laughs> he's like it's the train and then they get on the and then they have to relay it to the to the police. Uh, yeah, Daniels. So they go to Daniels. She's moving. Who's moving? He's like, why are we trains? We got hijacked here. It's the train. <laughs> it's just, or I, at the end they they give. I think it's they give Walter Matthau. Doesn't doesn't he have? He, they give him something to read, and he's reading the information. And Jerry still is repeating it. And it's the it's the joke from Terminator. He's like, yeah. What does he say? He's just like, I, I know how to read because he's reading the yeah, at yeah. the same time. It's like all these little. He's really funny. Or at the beginning, when the first train gets hijacked, there's a guy uh, who I said Tom Tom Petty's uh, plays this guy Fat Cats. He's the, he's the tower operator for Grand Central. He's like, what the hell's going on? That's so yeah, I'm gonna yeah. walk. And the guy, there's another old guy there. He's like, he's moving backward. Why is he moving back? I don't know why he's moving backward. You know what I found amazing was. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no. I mean, what I found amazing is in that scene, they're like, they stopped. Only the head cars moving. I found amazing. Like I don't know. I don't know what I thought, but like how they can tell which car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like they, they know each detail. Yeah, each they know the information each car. they had on the, these lights on on a board. Yeah, that's how you. That was you all know, when I up until I'd say Jesus that they could tell how many cars were moving. How many? Only yeah, the front car cars. Train, moving, they were going backward on a head and all this information through some kind of sensors that are yeah, going on in the, mid, in the early seventies. Yeah, and it's and these these boards which almost look like light bright boards. They used them up until like two thousand. 1999 until they transferred over to computer systems. I mean, I remember my dad, the board for the New Haven um, Metro North Station was huge, that big board. He'd be able to tell where everything was and you know how, you know, and it was a, it's a complicated job because you got to keep track of each train. Each train has a number, then each train car has a number and then, you know, you have to make sure and, and when we're talking about Metro North trains or those trains, there's doubles or there's triplets that are married together. So it's, but it's so funny, the interplay of like, you know, there's the joke that the woman, it's her second day on the job or the second week on the job in that, in that role with them. And she lost her ring down the toilet. And he's, yeah. he's bringing a plumber. He's like, I don't know how, what the hell? She got a <laughs> finger down the hole, you know? And then he's swearing. He's like, I don't care if she's fucking, I can't swear to give a broad a job, you know? And it's so real. And then he, and then it, to me, it gets serious where he's, you know, he's, he's walking out to the, uh, it's, it's, it's I mean, I, I just can't gush it enough. It's like so realistic where he's he's walking out into the subway to the stop and he's get the hell out of the way and then the, somebody like somebody gives him an attitude uh you know he's like who ca- who wants to know he's like the head of the fucking gct <laughs> tower wants to know and the guy's like oh i'm sorry they're right this way and then when he gets downstairs he starts he he this guy's ideas he's gonna fucking walk out and and and, and see what the hell is going on yeah. and stop it because he doesn't really know yet up until he gets to the platform because he left yeah he left before so, he, he's gonna go himself and see he thinks so it's up a, until he gets to the platform he like, thinks he it's just, just a he motorman. doesn't know that 
the train's been hijacked. Yeah, so he goes down, he talks to the cop, and the cop, they're like, you better send a cop after him. So he first encounters uh, one of the conductors bringing the rest of the train that got decoupled, their passengers back, watching out for the third rail. So he's like, what the hell's going on? He's like, you're the conductor, you're like the captain, you're supposed to stay on this ship. And then people are like, I'm going to sue. He's like, yeah, sue away. Watch the third rail. <laughs> he's like telling them to watch themselves. You know, it's just so, and then, and then he ends up getting shot by Hector Alonso, which ends up being like almost, to me, it's like, oh my God, it's serious. Suddenly. Yeah, all of a sudden it was like, it brings us back. You know, he like gets killed threat. and you kind of like that guy and it's sad. And then Dick O'Neill, the station master is like, oh my God, that was Fat Cats. I knew him. You know, it, it hits home. Then later on in the movie. It's it's an important moment because it, it, it flips it back. It from, flips it. It tells us as the audience and the characters in the movie how serious the situation yeah. really is. And later on when they there's this huge, you know, there's a clock that's installed. Robert Shaw goes, you have an hour to get me a million dollars. I'm going to start killing passengers. And that's pretty hard to do even back then to count a million dollars. And he had specifications. I want used bills. I want, you know, yeah. 120s. I no want a, serial numbers past a certain. Yeah, I want to. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, want, yeah, you know, yeah. so you got to count all that out an hour and they got to get the, the money from A to B and they, they're closing streets off and they're flying down on, you know, with patrol cars, beelining it down closed thoroughways. So when they, then, then that's a whole little thing about a chase and there's a crash. But when they finally get the money there, they got to run down and, get uh, off the platform through the track to get to the train you they suddenly come across the dead guy again and that to me was all you know it's, yeah it's, yeah. it's like oh, kind of forget about yeah, it. yeah and his body's still laying there dead you know it's kind of frightening and then there's another scene in the movie where there's that you have the police have then surrounded inside the tunnel the, the subway car as they would and they have snipers and the snipers yeah. off clear shots and the and the one of the the the, the I think he's a uh, transit cop who was the first one to run down after the guy who just had got killed, he's hiding and he's like the eyes on the situation telling what's going on, telling Walter Matthau and everybody what's happening and Jerry Stiller. He tells them very quickly, hey, let them know that I, I'm here. I'm, yeah. here. I'm, I'm between, a cop because I don't want to get caught. I'm between them yeah. and the bad guy. And then since he's, he's African-American, he's like, and I, you know, I'm not, you can't really good see me in the dark. You know, like, yeah. you know, and so there's a scene where everything's okay. But then a shot rings out, like one of the, you know, and that happens sometimes where you, people get so bored, you know, yeah. one of the snipers accidentally fires. I kind of love that, not that it happens, but that, like, it's it's only addressed in that, like, you know, he probably got bored or tired or, or yeah, whatever. You know, like, happened. it's never like, we never, we don't know who did it. We never find out who did it. Yeah. We, you know, it's yeah. I mean, we we didn't see it happen. We only heard the shot. It's but, just well, something nowadays. I feel like it would be way too. Yeah, they, they, they'd explain it all. But in in the context of the movie, you have our patrolman who's hiding. He's talking, and they frame it in such a way you see in, over his shoulder, way in the background. Yeah. You see the muzzle blast. You hear the shot go off. He ducks. I think somebody gets shot. Doesn't don't, don't they shoot the, um, the Wilson? Wilson. Guy. He gets shot in the arm. He gets shot in the arm, and then um. You know, Hector Alonso, who's the nut, immediately starts returning fire. There's this big... Then the cops start shooting. So and you got the guys shootout. with the money who are bringing the money down. They have to die they, they, for cover. Yeah, they're dropped. They're hiding in the, in the muck. And then once everybody stops, then the tension gets ratcheted up. Because even if it was a mistake, they shot first. So Robert Shaw, 
there's that scene where he picks the conductor, the young guy. Yeah, He's yeah. The, the guy that we just realized was getting trainee. And it's really, it's upsetting because you know what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's like, like, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. He says to him, like, yeah, go out and walk or you're going to help me go get the money. And everyone knows, like, well, why do I, why do I have to? He's like, you don't worry, conductor, go. Because he's got to pick, he's got to show them that he means business. Yeah, and you go, and it's, it, but it's because it's, and then I know we're, we're kind of running out of time, but the the, char- the dissection of the characters in the movie, you have like Martin Balsam, who's like this disgruntled, you know, motorman who got fired for whatever reasons, got a cold, never made anything of himself. This is his big break. He's going to be part of this thing. And his job is to help drive the train. You have Robert Shaw's heading it and all. And he wants revenge. And he wants, yeah, because he thought he was wrong from like they, they, I think fi- they gave him. They fired him and he felt. The MTA, wrong. slighted. He felt wronged by the company. And you have Robert Shaw, who's like this, you know, he, he, he worked for various governments doing various like black ops stuff Mercenary. in the 60s. Yeah. Um, you have Hector Alonso, who's like a loose cannon who very early on starts to buck authority. Fuck you, Robert Shaw. Yeah. I can do what I want. I don't care. And Robert, Robert Shaw, you can tell, playing this whole thing out. Very meticulous. They all are wearing big mustaches with big glasses. They're wearing uh, all hats with kind of like the designation of their color on the brim uh, of like some of their, their yeah. uh, Stetson hats. They're wearing overcoats that they can flip around later on, you know, so they all kind of look yeah, the reversible. same. Yeah, and it's kind of like the idea where you see Reservoir Dogs where they're all wearing the black suits. This movie, they're wearing these kind of things with, with disguises. So he's got a whole pattern, and then later on when he starts butting heads with uh, Hector Alonso, because Hector Alonso start he 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 calls the black gentleman on the car uh, on the car the N word. He's he he's 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 fucking with one of the women. He wants to see her breast. So it's like he's the guy you need to worry about. He's a psycho. Yeah. But then I love the shot where he um, when Robert Shaw goes and kills the conductor. He shoots the conductor out to, to make a point to everybody, and then he. The first thing he does, he turns and he looks at Hector Alonso. Well, he, you know, Hector Alonso kind of stands up to him at some point, and he said, "You know, I would have had a person. I would have had some. I would have had a. Oh yeah, I Robert had- Shaw says Hector Alonso gives him guff, and Robert Shaw says to him, "I would have had, I would have had you shot for 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 someone talking to yeah. me like that." And uh, Hector Alonso says, "Like, well, that's the difference between you and me. It's like I, I do my own killing." Yeah, and Robert Shaw's like, what'd you say, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> so later on, then when Robert Shaw does that, he looks right, and it's a great moment because it's like the difference between like a sociopath and a psychopath getting back to the, again, Reservoir Dogs, Mr. White trying to justify Mr. Blonde and Mr. White. Yeah. You know, great dichotomy. Then by the end of the movie, it's great that Robert Shaw, much like the, it's exactly in the book, Robert Shaw has to take out fucking uh, yeah. Hector Alonso's character because he's just he, he's because they want to they're going to leave the guns because they because they just they they took their disguises off. It's like they're just going to walk into yeah, the crowds of New they York got a City bag and, and they're like well, step one they all take their hats off. Step two take your turn your jackets. Step three put put your machine guns and and Hector Alonso's like I ain't giving this fucking thing. You know, we could be walking into like you know cops up there. I'm not I'm taking the gun with me. And so. Robert Shaw's like take. The Give me the gun, <laughs> and uh, he wouldn't. So, yeah. got to take care of business. And he and he and he blows them away. Great, and it's like ah, oh, you know, that's what you get. Robert Shaw's a fucking no nonsense guy. And then uh, the tension gets ratcheted on because, like I said, the, the, they they move a little bit, and and you think, and it's a great idea too. Like they're moving a little, and they're getting ready to get to the area where they're going to wait for all the green lights to get taken so that the subway car can start going little do does the cops know that that's yeah. them getting off the train and setting this thing called the gimmick quote unquote yeah. which is their which is way great. around it's the, like a mcguffany type thing we don't know what it is yeah you don't know we what only it, discover like what it's 
function is. While, while it's happening. Yeah. Because Daniel says to Matthau, because Matthau, he at some point leaves the office. He's like, I got to get. So he, he gets into a car, drives down, and then he gets on scene. And he's gets in the car with Daniels, and they're following the you know because the, they want to get the, what, what's our, they can't figure out what their end game is. And through the whole movie, uh, Walter Matthau keeps saying, like, "I don't know what you think you're going to get because you're you're in a tunnel. You thought you know yeah. you ain't going to get away, you <laughs> yeah, know." And yeah. it's and then uh, you know then we find out that they had no. That was the whole point of the robbery was they had a way to get away. Yeah. So it's a brilliantly structured movie, it, and it's and I can only assume that a lot of that come obviously comes from the book. But in terms of like a three act. Structure and the confines of hour and a half, two hours, however long the movie is. We have obviously the thing that we always bring up. We have a clock. Yep. You know, he's got. They've got one hour to bring the money, and exactly. that's like the first thing. That's the first instance of like, because it's an e- It's like the easiest way to ratchet up tension. It's yeah. like because as you get closest to the deadline. You know people are going to die, so you have that aspect. The and way Robert Shaw's like doing crossword puzzles. Yeah, he's like reading a book. It's or so it. good. And then like, and, and when 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 they first get into the car, and and you have the three of them cramped in there. You have uh, what's his face, Matthew Broderick's dad, who's playing the real motorman. He's in there with the. Um, with the uh, with uh, Martin Balsam, who's the the and he starts they start talking about business. You ever you ever get you ever pass a red light get written up? Yeah, how about you? Yeah, I got written up. And Mar- you know, all of a sudden, you know, yeah. Robert Charles like, why didn't you give him your name too? <laughs> and it's again exposition through action. We don't want anyone to know what we are. You know, yeah, like, yeah. You know. it's really a beautifully kind of structured script. Yeah, and, and the execution of it's really great. It's a it's a lot of fun. Like the the the, the, the dichotomy between the, the comedy and the and the, the suspense, yeah, and the tension and all that. And stuff. you don't really learn, and you don't need to know. You don't really learn too much about their backstories. The, I mean, the bad you guys barely even re- learn their real names. Yeah, I don't think you might even know their real names. Maybe like at some point towards the end, you find out that yeah. you know they have like actual names. And, and this is another example of something where I would love to have a backstory prequel of like the Robert Shaw character or even the Wilson guy from Home Improvement's character yeah. because he seems like a guy who's very loyal very yeah. loyal he's, he don't really he's doing it by the book about him. yeah he stutters a little bit which I think is a l- great bit of business that Hector Alonzo even you know slags him off for I'm not gonna st- st- stud like that other fucking guy Mr. Brett whatever his name is you know and you learn very quickly Hector Alonzo great he, he's the wild card he's the fucking guy you can't control uh, you always need on a, on a, a movie <laughs> like this a guy, a guy who like Mr. Blonde and Reservoir yeah. you can't control the wild card now in terms of like the 70 you know like it's filmmaking aspect I hear that I've heard that a lot of the stuff that Jerry Stiller says is improv- improvisation not scripted okay um, and I also heard that the idea of uh, that Martin Balsam's character sneezing was something that they came up with on. Yeah, I think Martin Balsam came up with that on set, yeah. which is beca- which is like the whole ending of the movie. Yeah, so <laughs> which is absolutely brilliant. And in the in the book, it ends that you'd think that it would end when Robert Shaw gets killed. Yeah, and and what another bit of great business is uh, they are. T- do, taking their time, getting their c- costumes off, following the thing, and then he had Robert Shaw has a dispute with Hector Alonso. And while this is all happening, that's when Walter Matthau ha- figures out maybe that you know they got off, they turned the car on, they turned the cop car around. Walter Matthau runs down. Yeah, but we also have that the undercover cop. As soon as they left the train, the undercover cop, the bad guys left the train. The undercover cop springs into action. Yeah, and they're like, what He's are you like, doing? I'm going to go after them, and he jumps off the train. Yeah, and, and they run into the tunnel. And there's a little shootout there. And what's his face gets shot. Wilson gets shot by the undercover cop. Dies. So they should have a shootout like that. And I and what's his face? 
Robert Shaw goes to finish him off. The yeah, undercover he cop. shoots the he shoots into the darkness, ends up hitting him. Yeah, the undercover cop who's like laying in cover in between the tracks, and so he walks over to kill and to it, finish off the undercover. And cop. he says a great line. He says, "Hey, at least take take." Uh, take uh, heart in that at least the, the, the mayor will come to your funeral and then all of a sudden Walter Matthau's like put it up hands yeah, up yeah. and it's like Walter Matthau and then they realize who they are and it's this great it's one of those meeting of the minds like at the it's like the end of Heat where Pacino meets De Niro yeah yeah you know and it's like are you the English guy I've been talking to you know? <laughs> he's like, yeah, I've been me. talking to yeah, yeah. you Garber yeah he's a you Garber he's like yeah and then and Robert Shaw got his hands up and then I don't I don't know if 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 you can remember the first time you saw this, but I didn't see this coming. No, I didn't. Again, see it spoiler alert: Robert Shaw says to him, "Hey, do you guys still have the death penalty in this state?" And uh, Walter Matha, which is New York State, and Walter Matha goes, "No." And, he go, and then I think Robert Shaw, what does he say? It's a, that's a shame. Something, yeah, I forget what he says. And he fucking touches his foot. He to puts, the, he touches his foot to the server. And he <laughs> has his other foot grounded on the on the other on the. Uh, on the on one of the railroad, you know, so he he forms a current and yeah. he fucking kill he fries himself, and it's great because the whole movie we've learned to watch out for the third rail, you know, people watch, you know, and and you hardly ever see, and that was something I heard that they were very scared about because Robert Shaw actually did it, yeah, so they had to make sure the power was off, they you know they touched it a couple times, you know, they made them even though that the power was supposed to be off for the entire shooting, yeah, of of that they all of track. still avoided the third rail. For chance, yeah, because nowadays, but who then, knew? <laughs> then one of the Shaw stars of the movie it. has to touch it. And, he, and then the funny, then the another one of my favorite jokes is after that, Walter Matthau runs up to the cop, yeah, who's like dying. He says, uh, "We're gonna get an ambulance down here. Do you, you know, hold tight, miss, because because <laughs> he's undercover. He's got long hair. <laughs> he thinks it's a girl. And he's in a poncho, <laughs> <laughs> and he's in the dark, and he can't see because he's in the gutter of the dark. But Robert Shaw getting—it's such a great kill because you know, I mean." He's the ultimate fucking badass. Yeah, which is where the move, where the remake of the 2009 remake really kind of starts to. I don't. I, I don't even want to talk about that. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to. I don't even want to bring. I love Tony. It's a Scott. Totally different ending. Yeah, I love Tony Scott. I love. So you, uh, if Denzel you've Washington. seen the 2009 movie, you don't think you don't need even, to see this one. Yeah, it's a totally different. Movie. Can't even. Can't even compare. Same premise. Some major. Same plot. Some plot points. But much better. But a and I'd but even a very different. You movie. should probably see the 1998 TV movie. You can track it down because I hear some of that's a little closer to the book. But like we're saying, there's not major changes. Well, anyway, so the, the only guy who this guy keeps on so saying what happens Martin is Martin Balson who says like I'm going to die today. He's the one who's with the cold. So what happens is uh, undercover cop shoots Wilson. He dies. Uh, Robert Shaw kills Hector Alonso, who was acting up. He dies. Martin Boston's the first one. Martin Boston's the first one to, to leave as planned, and then Robert Shaw gets into the gunfight with the undercover cop. Is about to go kill the undercover cop, and that's when Walter Matthau shows up. That exchange, Walt, uh, Robert Shaw kills himself. So Martin Balsam is out by himself through the whole movie. Since they've been doing things, talking on the sub, uh, the, the, the 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 CBs, the the the, the walkie talkies, every once in a while, like. Uh, we talked about uh, Lee Wallace. The mayor has a cold. I love the joke that, that you're going to get booed. He doesn't want to go. And you have to make an appearance. He's like, I got a temperature of 105. <laughs> and then the, scene, the payoff is like, you don't even see him. You hear everyone start booing the crowd. They're like, oh, the mayor's here, you know? <laughs> so the mayor's sick. And then Martin Balsam's like, it's like the worst day of his life. He's battling sick, but it's the day you have to do this. So every time... Robert Shaw is talking to Walter Matthau through the movie. Every once in a while, Martin Balsam, who's next to him, accidentally sneezes. And, and you have uh, Walter Matthau on the other end of the CB, or the walkie-talkie saying, Gazoom tight. And then Robert Shaw's like, rolls his eyes and looks at like, you know, Martin Balsam, like, what the fuck? So Martin Balsam gets away, and they realize, and this is something they've changed in the book, 
and I'll try to be quick about this, where in the book they had the motorman be the guy that Robert Shaw kills to prove a point. Yeah. But in the movie, which is, I think, done expertly the right way, they have the motorman take the people back. Yeah. Because then that gives you the question of if they let, if they let the motorman go to take all the the the, the rest of the subway train uh, occupants back, you have to have someone on the train that's part of the game that knows how to drive a subway train. So that's how they are able to deduce how to start yeah. trying to find the one guy that yeah. got away. So it's Walter Matthau says this ben, uh, to, to Jerry, Jerry Stiller. Stiller. Get a Jerry list Jerry. of everybody who's in the last twelve months or whatever that's yeah, been fired. That's fired. Might disgruntled. Be disgruntled. So then, after you think, like Blake said, that the movie ends with Robert Shaw killing himself. No, there's this little great. They start okay. There's fifteen guys, Zeke, and he's like, "Let's go." So there's this, and then you have like a, a great arrangement of the theme. They're trying to go around. The first guy they go to, dun dun dun. They open. And they'll talk to the apartment, and he's like, "Are you blah blah blah?" He goes, "Yeah." What the hell do you guys want? And then they look down, and he's he's in, he's in a wheelchair. In a wheelchair yeah. And they're like, "Nothing. Have a good day." And then the next one, they go to a toll booth, and he's like, "What the fuck, do you guys want? Twenty five cents." And he's like, uh, uh, "You know, uh, where were you? Where you were know. you?" He goes, "What are you transit cops?" He's like, "Fuck you guys." And he goes, "Where were you?" He's like, "Oh, you are talking about that? I've been here all day today. Are you sure? You can? Vol- yeah, okay." He's about to leave. He's like, twenty five cents. <laughs> yeah, still, yeah. you know, still pay the toll. Yeah. So the last we get to the last scene of the movie, Martin um, Martin Balson's back in his apartment. He's living in this fucking you know, it's a studio, Tiny, like a real New York apartment, like a like a, not what you see in movies as being a New York. It's apartment. a real not New York, like a, not like on Friends, yeah, or Seinfeld. <laughs> it's a real. It, they probably shot it in a real New York apartment. I mean, I don't know studio how they did it. Apartment. Everything is clustered. The stove is next to his bed, and he's like a pig in shit. He's got all this money. They they took the money off of Hector Alonso that they killed, and you know, so he's got some. So he's rolling around in it, whatever. There's a knock at the door. He's like, "Fuck!" So he grabs all the money. He st- throws it in the stove, shuts the stove, and then Walter Matha comes in with Jerry Stiller, and they start talking. Hey, how you doing? Oh, you're sick. How's? Uh, I don't think did they mention that he's sick. I don't think he mentions he's sick. I don't think he mentions. And he's like, "How you doing?" He's like, "Oh, I've been in bed all because he's been day where off. he works nights." Yeah. So he's been in bed. He looks over Walter Matha's shoulder. He sees a. The, the, they're, they're, they're chatting and he sees in the back of the apartment by the bed where he was rolling around he had gotten the money away that one bit of bill had fallen and it's right floor, by the bottom of the bed thing of bills, so he's got to go over so he walks over that. he hides it and then they're they're like Jerry Stiller wants to light uh, a cigarette and he's like nobody's yeah, got a match he's going to don't worry I'll use the stove but all the money's in the oven yeah so Martin Bolton's like I'll get you the light so he gets <laughs> over there so then they're like you, oh, you've been here all day Why? what happened there's been a, a, a heist he's like why I've been here all day are you, are you sure He's like, yeah, yeah. So they're like, okay, sorry to trouble you. They start to leave. Then Martin Balsam's like, you know what? And Martin Balsam, you know, he's scot-free. Yeah. And he starts like, here's another thing. You know, I don't know why you guys would even accuse me. So he gets like on his high horse a little bit because he's excited about what just happened. He's got all this money. He's like, blah, 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 blah. And he another he thing. Thinks he's you know, getting away with it. Yeah. His confidence and he's, is all up. And he says, and so stop bothering me. And, and, <laughs> and Walter Mathis is like, okay, have a good evening. Shuts the door. Cuts back to Martin Balsam. Martin Balsam sneezes. And then it cuts to the door opens, and, and it's a great fucking shot. <laughs> and it's Walter Matthau leans his head in, and he's got this look on it. I can't even describe the, yeah, the look yeah. on his face. Or he's like, I got you. And then the music, dun 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 And then it just fades out. And for me, that's one of the best endings in movie history like just you don't see it coming it's such a yeah you know it's such a, a right turn he gets him because he hears the sneeze they, i think he shuts the door and says kazoom tight yeah and then yeah. he opens it and he realizes dun, 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 and they got the him. whole movie they've been dropping this this subtle 
all the way through the movie until, and you would never have that ending in a movie. Nobody would green light. We, we would. <laughs> we would. You but we would never have a distributor <laughs> that would let a us studio do it. that would say, you can't have a movie end like that. Spielberg could do it. If we got Spielberg on our team. If Spielberg <laughs> wanted to do it, maybe he would be allowed to do it. And uh, I mean, it's just such a, it's such a payoff because it's so funny. And then they even, I, we keep saying the underlining theme of, of comedy in this movie. They even how they set the shot where Martin, uh, where Walter Matthau leans in. He's got this look on his face, like, you know, you, you got That's some a explaining very to do. Funny look. And then with the music starts, and then it fades out, and then the, then this great, uh, a different arrangement of the beginning theme closes out the end theme, which is a little longer, and it's just so good. It just start, and you're just like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if people clapped, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's just so good. And they say that the movie did very well in theaters. In, in, city, in cities that had subway systems. And then other, other, it did all right. But, you know, it's certainly a movie that it got great reviews. People called it an excellent thriller, excellent heist film, one of the great movies of the 70s. But I feel like growing up, I never heard about I it. I never, you know, I, that's why that's the only reason why I said, you know, this might be a movie that a lot of people that listen to the show might not have seen. Only because it's been pretty under the radar yeah. and hard to get. Like I said, I, I'm not positive about this, but at least there was a time when it came out on Blu-ray that I think it was only exclusive to Best Buy. It might not be that way now. Yeah, I mean, the DVD I have, the one we watched tonight, was from 2000. Like you said, the soundtrack is really hard to find. Yeah. It's really rare and kind of a limited you thing. You can go on YouTube, and we have, we'll have a link in the podcast. You can listen to it, and you know maybe we'll even put it on at the end of this, but it's just... I, it's 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 just it's a movie that I think has flown under the radar for a lot of people, other than you the know, Beastie Boys. The, the, it's been mentioned in music, <laughs> in the Reservoir Dogs. I mean, I know. guess if you were old enough to have grown up, yeah, with it uh, in, in the seventies, in the seventies, maybe in the New York City area, it was it was, it was on. You know, you well, know. that's another movie. I mean, look at the two other movies. Walter Matthau did at the time, Charlie Varick, which is the Don Siegel's next movie in seventy two after Dirty Harry. That hardly gets talked about great another that's another robbery movie where they're heistmen but they steal the they steal money from the mob by accident they rob a bank and then the laughing policeman is basically unheard of and that's a cop movie where like i think somebody shoots up a a city bus at the beginning of the movie and it's a and and i've only seen that once i remember being very good but it's a gritty 70s movie a lot of these gritty 70s movies that like the seven ups you know i mean people know the iconic they know serpico they know french french connection They, I mean, even cruising, I don't, you know, isn't that falls into this realm where there's a lot of maniac where these movies are just like, you know, they were done and then for whatever reason they never got, you know, now they're getting because of soundtrack, because of the stars, because of re-releases, restorations, but you know, it's just such a good, it's a great heist movie. This is a fantastic, influential, you know, really kind of, I love the script, the way it plays out, yeah, the, the way, uh, exposition is revealed, you know the setup of the ending is so great. It's just, it's a nice, it's a smart, yeah, and it's fun movie. You know, Not but, in terms of like you need to be smart to get it, but just like it's very meticulously plotted yeah. out in a in a really brilliant way. And it's uh, and it's funny. Yeah, and you just got to go into it like don't have your PC glasses on. Because yeah. it'll ruin it for you, you know. I mean, don't be offended. Yeah, I mean, uh, and it's not really. Aff- I mean, there's, you know, I mean, the, the, the there is an N word said in the movie, but it's to deliver how much of an asshole and yeah. bad guy Hector Alonso is, and he gets his comeuppance at the end. You know, he's a fucking cocksucker in the movie. Excuse my language, you know. But none of the other, all the other people, they're just. It's just like the real world. It's like it's just like a day in the life in New York City. Yeah. That's why it's so awesome about it. Like it's like none of these people are real actors. Great ensemble cast. Yeah. 
Um, you know, and it's, 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 and I think there's even, if I remember correctly, and I could be wrong, there is an episode of King of Queens where Jerry Stiller is talking about what he used to do for a living or whatever, and they have a flashback. I think this is it, and they show clips of this movie of him being like back then, and you know, yeah, yeah. you know, so uh, yeah. I, and Jerry Stiller, of course, he was part of a comedy team uh, at the time, so the fact that they would let him improvise a lot of stuff, uh, yeah, and he's, he's Ben Stiller's dad, yeah, and, uh, you know, like the stuff about like there was a bomb scare. It turned out to be a cantaloupe, whatever that joke is. I think like he just said that. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's, it, it, it's it's just uh, it's so yeah, and it's like I you know he wasn't I don't know if he was a real seen person you know us growing up. I mean I didn't really know him until like the Seinfeld years and stuff like that. You know, yeah, People, not for our generation, yeah. but to him and his wife, uh, they would go and do yeah they had they went on the Mad Sullivan show of and, course um, yeah. Uh, so it's just it's it's a really good snapshot of the year, and everybody's good in it. You know, you could you could probably link everybody to all these different other things that I've done. And Walter Matthau, spectacular. Uh, and I love Walter Matthau. Yeah, and I, I I've been pushing for us to do Grumpy Old Men yeah. for a long time, and I think we may soon enough. And uh, you know, I love Robert Shaw. A lot of people know him particularly because of Jaws, but yeah, he's such yeah. a good actor. Uh, Black Sunday is one of my favorite movies. He's so good. And all, uh, Battle of the Bulge is another movie which I didn't mention. Uh, that That's one of these big movies, a war movie that has Henry Fonda, a whole laundry list. Telly Savas is in that too. And Robert Shaw is the head tank commander in that movie for the Nazis uh, with the tiger tanks. Great movie, and he's really good in that. And then, of course, people know him from... He's great in From Russia with Love. Yeah. You know, and uh, he's a person who died suddenly. He had a heart attack in 78 or 79. He was in Ireland near his home driving. He didn't feel well, got out of the car, had some chest pains, and just dropped dead. You know, very sudden. It's very sad. Uh, you know, and he was an alcoholic, and, you know, people know about, I think, some of his issues with alcoholism related to the big um, speech he gives in Jaws, you know. So, uh, yeah, all these people, great, great, great. I'm sure... We'll probably get to other Robert Shaw movies. Yeah, well, definitely gonna do Jaws. Definitely, definitely gonna get Jaws. Yeah, exactly. We've been talking about doing Black Sunday for a long time. And Jaw, you know, so uh, you know, who knows? And maybe you know, if down the line for Memorial Day, we do like Battle of the Bulge. I don't know. Who knows? But it's you know, great, great ensemble cast. I'm sure we'll do another Walter Matthau movie. You <laughs> At know, some point. yeah. So uh, Jerry Stiller, maybe. <laughs> who knows? You never know. You never know. Uh, but thank you very much for listening. Uh, hope you like what you've been hearing. We've had a lot of fun doing all this. Uh, we'll be back in the next two weeks with a new movie. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on, find us on Instagram. We got our homepage where we post a lot of extras uh, for the movie and stuff like that. You can stream and download our our podcast there. Uh, Blake? At Scored to Death on social media, uh, scoredtodeath.com, and, of course, Scored to Death, the podcast. And Score to Death, the book, Score to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. If I have my schedule correct in my head, I'm kind of excited for the next episode. And I think it's going to be a surprise. Uh, Saturday Movie Sleepovers. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Score to Death. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Saturday Movie Sleepovers. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely, if I remember correctly what it is, it's going to be very... I don't think anybody would expect us to do it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not, that it, not that this, the people were expecting us to do this movie. Yeah. But I think it's a movie that's going to be like, huh. So, we'll see you in two weeks, and, uh, you know, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. David Shear. <laughs> Later. <laughs>